0: Louder! Thrill me. Black as midnight on a moonless night. Bitches leave, Groovy. You fucking hold up, hold up, well then, there, motherfucker! It's got a death curse! Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> <laughs> Let's show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown. Oh, forever. <laughs> Oh, damn enchilada These guys were
1: lapping. Recording live from the Black Lodge it's me the Free Will Burnin' Head turnin' ass kickin' my cheese mo Master Podcast and mouthpiece of the Southeast uncontested superstar of the airwaves and reigning and defending pod cast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, bringing you another edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Happy November, Ran Army. And I got to say, I'm very happy to be moving into the Thanksgiving time of year. Got plenty to be thankful for, but I can't help think that Halloween went by just too quickly. So I have a task for all of you out there in the Ran Army. I want you to line your gullet with all those candies you got trick-or-treating. I want you to crack open a couple of cold ones because we're going to have ourselves a good old-fashioned Halloween hangover. November be damned, it's October in my heart, and what better way to celebrate than with an in-depth retrospective for a movie that has it in the title, Trick or Treat. One of my all-time favorites, but we couldn't do it alone, and we have a heavy hitter in the wings coming in to share his experiences. Mark Price, you know him better as Ragman. Eddie Weinbauer will be here later on in the podcast. First, here's some messages from our sponsors. Hey, wrestling fans.
2: Have you ever wanted to watch the black and gold brand from the very beginning? Well, we have the podcast for you. Right here at Next Evolution, the rise and demise of the black and gold brand. See such stars as Seth Rollins, Bo Dallas, Bray Wyatt, Cassius Ono, Aiden English, and Corey Graves get their start all the way to the demise of the black and gold brand. Follow us at Next Evolution Pod on all social media platforms and follow our podcast, NXT Evolution.
0: Anywhere podcasts can be found. Are you a nerd? Well, I got the podcast for you. It's the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast, hosted by me, Metal Thrashing Mike. And every episode, I'll be bringing you fans from the world of underground heavy metal, just waiting for you to hear them. So go check us out on all major streaming services as the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast.
1: Come on down to Mass by Lance Premium Friday the 13th Custom Made Hockey Mask Down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Masked by Lance Go order one now, boy! yee hee
0: Hey, assholes, it's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the rants from the Black Lodge
1: Podcast, here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your blood. Sell your children. Go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money, as long as you give it to us. Would you like a t-shirt? A mug or a sticker to show that you're a true friend and a
0: member of the Rant Army? Well, all you gotta do is go to RantArmy.com, and if you don't buy something, then fuck you! Dive into the new action-packed thriller, Mr. Black. This is a story about a mafia hitman, Mr. Black, whose latest target is nothing like he's had to deal with before. Mr. Valentino is a man that's into the dark arts, who calls in the Grim Reaper to kill Black. However, the spell fails to be fully successful, as he is still murdered. Now Death himself is pursuing Mr. Black relentlessly. Now who can Black turn to for help? Who can stop a curse like this? Get Mr. Black on Amazon Books or as a digital download on Kindle.
1: All right, Rant Army, I hope you're ready for some Halloween fun with a pinch of heavy metal antics thrown in for good measure because I just ate an entire bag of candy corn and I'm ready to rock. I'm your host, Brandon A. Lane, and tonight we're cranking the podcast to 11 with an in-depth retrospective of 1986's hard-rocking slasher, Trick or Treat. No tricks tonight, just treats, and it's an absolute treat for myself to introduce the man who is sitting across from me. He came to rock with his cock out. Stinky cock, that is. Please welcome back to the Black Lodge, Stank Dick Eddie. Hey, it's been a good minute. Well, you were just on the podcast uh, for uh, Halloween Resurrection, so yeah, been, that, eh?
2: that, that's like the B show. This that's like Velocity. I want to be
1: on SmackDown. I dare a you. Reference. How dare you. How dare you? <laughs> You're right, but How dare you. <laughs> This is actually one of the old episodes we did in the early days of the podcast back before really nailed down the format. And I've been sort of ruminating that for some time, wanting to get back in the mix and do this film justice. Cause I think it's uh, fair to say that's one that you and I both really, really enjoy. And we're going to sing its praises and tear it apart in good fashion. So let's just hit the ground running. Trick or Treat released October 24th, 1986. Last month, was its 36th anniversary? It doesn't seem like 1986 was all that long ago, but that just shows the show my age that would make me 38 <laughs> <laughs> When did you first see Trick or Treat? Uh the very
2: first time I saw it, my brother had it on DVD. My brother's thirteen years older than I am, so he are, he had seen this movie years and years and years ago, and then he just randomly found it on DVD. So one day we we're at his house and we watched it. So it was probably is probably at least fifteen,
1: about fifteen years ago. Well, let's do the math. Does that does that make you a teenager? Yeah. yeah, I was like eighteen. Yeah, that's it's funny you say that because I did not see this movie as a kid. This completely eluded me. I was, I don't know if you call me an adult, but I was an elder teenager uh, at that point, and I, I found it in the five dollar bin at Walmart. And I didn't realize this was a movie made in 1986 on the cover. It's got like a 1992 picture of Ozzy Osbourne and, you know, a really weird, really bad picture of Gene Simmons. And we'll get to that a little later on. But I was lured in enough by my heavy metal, you know, insides and my heart for, you know, the metal scene. I'm like, oh, I'm going to check this out. Five dollars. Yeah, it's worth giving a shot. But I fell in love with it and it sent me down this rabbit hole for years of trying, you know, to, to find a VHS copy and, and so on and so forth. But it's a movie that's for me has only grown in my fandom over the years. You feel the same way, I'm assuming? Oh, fuck yeah. Soundtrack alone, buddy, which I know we're going to get to. Oh yeah. <clears throat> so uh, the budget for Trick or Treat comes in at an estimated three and a half million dollars. And uh, considering uh, everything they were able to accomplish in this movie, because there's there's some pretty spectacular, uh, monster effects and a lot of rotoscope, you know, electricity and, <laughs> and shit like that. So that's I, where the budget went. Yeah. They, they, they utilized their money wisely and, um, and only three million dollars probably went to Gene Simmons. Yeah. You're so, right. so they, that, that half a million dollars, <laughs> man, they stretched the fuck out of that. Uh, opening weekend, two million nine hundred and twelve thousand six hundred and eighty seven dollars. Uh, for that time, probably a pretty good return. Yeah, immediately I'm making over half or what they put into it. Which, uh, let's just go for its worldwide gross. It comes to $6,797,218. So this wasn't a runaway success, but it did make its money back, you know, once over. So once you factor in advertising, which I don't think there was a ton for this movie back then, but, you know, it, it made money, but it wasn't a runaway success. Uh, What do you think the IMDB score for Trick or Treat is Uh, out of 10? uh, I would say 5.4. You're close. 5.8. Rotten Tomatoes. What do you think has it as? 28. No, you're wrong. 75%, which is fresh. However, what do you think the audience score is?
2: Oh, man. That completely threw me off. It was... Probably
1: 60%. You're close, man. 62%. I'm always, I'm always like sort of taken back when the, when it's like a movie like this and the audience score is less than the critical score because I'll just be honest with you. I love this movie, but there is a lot wrong with it, or at least for it to be like a 74, you said 74? uh, 75. how (laughs) good question man i have no idea but uh, i think it's one of those movies where you can really see the craft and how it was put together and it's one of those where the sum of the parts outweigh the whole so it just has a lot of goodwill towards it and plus the music kicks ass so even if you're not a big slasher movie fan you know tune it out put it on the background you're gonna enjoy the music and if you don't fuck you you're listening to the wrong podcast god damn it (laughs) um What do you think Metacritic has it as out of 100? I would say like 64. Nope, 57. Metacritic is always the worst aggregate, and it can suck my dick. 57% is way too low. However, the one that we generally agree with the most is Google users. Where do you think they have it at? I would say like 69. 95%. Holy shit. Now, how many people... Voted towards that, I have no idea, but the people who did, only 5% of them are wrong, so good for them. Um, However, the one aggregate that we trust (laughs) above all, and that's the Rant Army Review, in the Facebook group, we give you two options. Trick-or-treat good, trick-or-treat bad. Where do you think our loyal listeners line up when it comes to trick-or-treat out of 100? I'd say 95. 87%. So, some of you out there, uh, probably a little too hard on this movie, and after you hear this retrospective, you're probably going to think I'm one of them, but like I said, it's uh, the sum of the parts outweigh the whole, and we're going to sing its praises, and we're going to point out the bad things as we go along. On Stank Dick Eddie's Titty Tally, what do we have in terms of breastage? So... There's apparently a
2: controversy on the podcast here <laughs> when they want to know how many tits. If we say two, we mean two sets of tits, not just, oh, well, there's one titty. No, there are
1: two sets of movies. Trust me, if, if you only see one tit in a movie, I'm going to point that out, and that's going to be half. Half the fucking set. That's how this works. We're goddamn professionals. I'm not. I'm not shortchanging a titty tally. That's our bread and butter, br- brother.
2: Yep, Brother, and I am. And I am involved with the titty tally. I started the titty
1: tally. Two sets of boobies in this movie. Goddamn right. So uh, there's an unnamed topless girl in the school pool. God bless you. Those things are nice. But the but the one that tops them all. That's where we get to see Jeannie Topless while she's getting ghost fucked. It is a fantastic scene. God bless America.
2: USA! 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 USA. USA.
1: (laughs) And on Fat Tony's hit list, we have 17. Now, although... I want to lay this out just for transparency. It actually could be higher. That scene where they're in the, uh, the gymnasium. Gym, oh yeah. That, that is so fucking chaotic that I had to watch that scene four or five times and going back and just frame by frame. And I think it's 17, but I will admit I very well could be wrong. So feel free to uh, lambast me in the comments below if you think I'm incorrect. Now, 17 or so kills, that's pretty damn excessive, even for an 80s slasher movie. However, the true number of note when it comes to trick-or-treat is the sheer number of horror films it had to contend with the year of its release. So let's take a trip back in time and check out the stiff competition for 1986. So, Eddie, if you'd be so kind to read out the long list of stiff competition.
2: (coughs) Oh, wow, there's some good ones on here, too, just immediately. April Fool's Day, Chopping Mall, Class of Nukem High, Critters, Deadly Friend, Dead Time Stories, Demons 2, I'm a fan, uh, Dream Maniac, not really a fan, The Fly. You don't like Dream Maniac? It's, a complete, it's a complete rip-off and of Nightmare fr- Yeah, and I've actually watched a video David, recently David, of, all the, of all the rip-offs of David, Nightmare.
1: Yeah, David Dakota, who uh, has uh, made a career out of making really, really... uh scantily clad uh, movies with scream queens and then more recently has made really really scantily clad movies with shirtless men (laughs) It's that's it that's his go to thing so god bless you brother I guess that's that's both worlds (laughs) I get it man no hate Uh, Friday the 13th part
2: 6 Jason Lives god damn right from beyond Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer The Hitcher my god Invaders from Mars Killer Party Little Shop of Horrors great movie Monster Dogs, starring Alice Cooper. Neon Maniacs, Night of the Creeps. No, oh, Tom Atkins. Yeah, God yes, goddamn right. Thrill me, motherfucker. Thrill me. <laughs> <laughs> Poltergeist Two, II, Psycho Three, Rawhead Rex, Slaughter High, Sorority House Massacre. Goddamn right. Spookies, Terror Vision, oh. Texas Chainsaw Massacre
1: Two, Troll, Truth or Dare, Vamp, Witchboard, and the Wraith. Um, quick story about Witchboard. Our buddy Mick Strom worked on that. He does not remember working on the movie. <laughs> I'll let your imagination run wild as to why. So, based off of the laundry list of movies we have right here, Eddie, where do you think tr- uh, Trick or Treat lies in terms of like box office? Is it in the top ten? Is it in the top twenty? Like, what do you what do you think? Uh, uh,
2: my heart would like to say the top twenty. Um, but looking at it here, you have about 20 here. So, uh, I I honestly, with the the amount it made,
1: I would say it'd still be on the lower end. You also have to take into consideration that a lot of these movies are independent releases. So their box office totals are kind of unknown, unknown or, um, fabricated or they're just, uh, went straight into the pocket of the mob. So, I'm going simply off of what available information there is out there, reputable information. But coming in at number 11, we have Trick or Treat with $6,797,218. Number 10, Witchboard with Tony Katane and those sweet-ass ginger titties. Ugh! $7,369,373. Number nine, and this one's surprising because it was released unrated and completely forgotten almost immediately. One of my personal favorites, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 with $8,025,872. Number eight, Deadly Friend, where Christy Swanson is a robot and she throws a basketball at fucking uh Mama Fratelli's head and explodes. That is the greatest gift in the, history, right. in the history of gifts. $8,988,731. Number seven, April Fool's Day. $12,947,763. That's a movie that did really well based off the reputation of the people involved with it. And it completely fell off of the face of a cliff once everybody realized it was a complete troll. I love April Great Fool's movie. Day. But I can understand why it fell off like it did. Number six, Critters. Critters. A new line cinema classic, The House That Freddy Built, but a lot of people forget. Man, Critters was right up there in terms of like, you know, being the other foundational. element. And this is the year after Nightmare, correct? '85. Um, no, this is the year after. This is the year after uh, Freddy's Revenge. Oh. So it's two years after Nightmare on Elm Street. But thirteen million one hundred sixty-seven thousand two hundred thirty-two dollars. Number five, making his directorial debut, we have Norman Bates himself returning. And Psycho 3, you you just watched Psycho 2 for the first time. Fuck, it was so good. Yes. I, God I, damn, it was so good. I love Psycho 2. I have nothing but positive things There's to say There's not about a it. bad thing about that movie. It's great, especially going into it not knowing what what happens,
2: like what's unraveling. I would recommend so that
1: you watch Psycho 3. Just realize that it's going to get a li- little bit more into the schlocky <laughs> slasher territory than, than the highbrow work of um, Tom Holland. Oh, Tom Holland wrote it, mm-hmm. and um, oh my god, uh, I'm gonna feel shitty for not saying the remember the director's name, uh, Richard Franklin. Yeah, he's fantastic. He's like Australia's Hitchcock. He did that I, movie. He did that movie <laughs> Road Games. It's uh, so fucking good. Ah! and then Tom Holland with uh, Friday. Yeah, everybody loves Friday. God damn. Friday. Goddamn. <laughs> uh, number four, Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives, $19,472,057. Now, people are going to give me a little bit of shit for including this, but number coming at number three, Little Shop of Horrors, which in of itself is not really a horror movie, but you have to include it because it does contain horror in the title, and... You know, it is sort of a horror comedy, even though it was advertised a little bit more on the, the comedic side. $39,032,786. Damn. Number two, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, $40,996,665. And coming in at number one, how could you not realize it's number one? The Fly by David Cronenberg. 60,629$ dollars one hundred and let me say that again: sixty million six hundred twenty-nine thousand one hundred and fifty-nine dollars. That is a runaway success in any decade. And if you adjust that for inflation. That is a fucking huge amount of money. Jeff Goldblum fucking rules. Yeah. And I love you, Gina Davis, gums and all. Yeah. All right. Now, in the decade where heavy metal and slasher movies were king, it was only a matter of time before the peanut butter of hard rock and the chocolate of the splatter movie mixed together to create something truly delicious. So let's take a trip back to the mid-80s and let's go from page to screen. The genesis of Trick or Treat starts with producers Michael Murphy and Joel Soisson. I'm hoping I'm saying that name correctly, who were fresh off of one of our favorite movies, not Elm Street 2, or at least it's one of, my, it's one of mine. One it, of my it's going to become one of my favorites. Which did fairly well financially at the time because off the reputation of the first movie, but it's another movie that like was a me- immediate drop-off because people were like, well, this isn't like the first movie. We're kind of going through that right now with Halloween ends. We're not going to get into that. <laughs> oh, I got all day to talk we'll, about that. We'll talk about that at a later <laughs> date. Um but it wasn't it wasn't very well received by the public. That's the point I'm making. And if you want to hear more about Nightmare 2, please check out our Freddy's Revenge episode that Fat Tony and I did. It's available in the archive. We go really deep into all the per, uh, perceived sins of that movie and you know the you know all the weird undercurrents and everything going on with it. Um that being said, if the body possessing angle wasn't right for Freddy Krueger, maybe it would be a better fit for Sammy Kerr. Did you realize the similarities between Freddy's Revenge uh, and Trick or Treat? You know, watching these movies,
2: I didn't until recently, and I started thinking about it. I was like, "This is pretty much kind of it's kind of like Nightmare. It, it, it kind of it's very similar
1: to Nightmare." I, there, there, it's definitely. You can tell they're like, wow, we want another we want a Freddy Krueger kind of character. We want, you know, a burn it all. Well, yeah, yeah, we want a character that is a little more animated in terms of his verbal nature, but a little more on the paranormal side and not really entirely grounded in like a flesh and blood kind of situation like, you know, Michael or or Jason in the the earlier films. Um, But I mean, who did it better? Uh, in term I'm not saying like which is the better movie, but in terms of like the possession angle and the, the, you know the the nature of the way the the one character is sort of articulating through the other character, which movie do you think does it better, Trick or Treat or Freddy's Revenge?
2: Oh, it's definitely Trick or Treat. Uh, I love the whole backmasking of the fucking record and everything like that. Uh, as a kid part two, Freddy's revenge always kind of threw me off just because not because all the gay undertones, which I mean, everyone knows everyone calls it the gay Friday, everyone, or, or gay, 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 gay night- nightmare. Sorry. No, gay. <laughs> the gay Friday is part seven. <laughs> You're right. You're right. <laughs> and, um, but my thing is, you know, as a kid, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Even to me then that Freddie was like out and about, um, cause he's supposed to consist, you know, in your dreams, this actually gives it a, a good medium to come out and be out on, uh, on our living space in our world,
1: uh with with Sebbie I think we're we're probably going to disagree somewhat when we get into the minutia um about the means in which this occurs and and you know the point in which it shifts from one kind of movie to a different kind of movie. And that's fine. Uh that's what we're here to do. But I still am going to say I think Freddy's Revenge ultimately does a better job in handling this. I love the setup of Trick or Treat. I think just the execution is uh, leaves a little bit uh, to be wanted, and we'll get into that a little as we go on. We'll talk about Sammy Kerr character when we get to Tony Fields' section of the retrospective, but Freddy's revenge uh, connection got me thinking about what makes uh, like a great marketable slasher villain. What does Freddy have that makes him so successful that like Sammy Kerr doesn't?
2: I think my opinion is the backstory of Freddie. And that he was, um, I mean, we don't really know too much about Freddy. Yet. Like, we don't know he's the bastard son of a hundred or a thousand maniacs and all that. Um, but we know that he was taking people um, and the kids in their dreams and that he was essentially going back to kill these people, these kids after the parents killed him. I think he has the better backstory than what Sammy Kurt does. They,
1: they kind of gloss over Sammy's backstory. Mm-hmm. You literally get... All the information in like a news clipping. Yeah, it's like, setting. yeah, it's a it's a he uh, <clears throat> our main character Ragman. Ragman hears it over you know uh, in the background. It's playing on a television, and then it you know get freezes on the screen of like Sammy Kerr, blah 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 to blah blah blah. You know, is he in the kitchen? He I, ble- the- I believe he is. Yeah. It's like either before or after school. I can't remember exactly which, but. To me, the reason that Freddie succeeds ultimately and was able to have you know multitude of sequels, it's just it's Robert England. That's the simple. Oh, yes, that's as the as simple well. fact about it. And that's not me taking the piss out of Tony Fields, who is an excellent actor. But even even in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, like Freddie has like very little screen time, but every moment he's on screen, you cannot take your eyes off of him. It's just the body language, it's the way he talks, it's the it's his eyes. And Tony Fields has all those elements, it's just not put together, I think, in a way that is as dynamic with a first impression. Now, over time, I've come to love Sammy Kerr. There's just some ridiculous things about it, but it's also hinging kind of in between time periods of like the serious slashers of the early 80s and the more campy ones of the, you know, the later time. So I think he's sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Now, if they'd made a sequel, and they could have built, you know, a little more on that, and gave him a little more to do, and maybe had him—I'm uh, r- getting ridiculous here—in terms of just like the ideas of like what Nightmare on Street would have done in like Nightmare <clears> Five or something, <laughs> but like he could have ridden a giant uh, fucking v-v-guitar, playing v-guitar, and speared someone out. I'm just there there's a lot of fun possibilities they could have done with this, um, but. Ultimately, that's not what happened. There are elements in Trick or Treat that I I think positively separated from a lot of the slasher movies of the 1980s, and that was drawing from a couple of real world controversies, and we're going to discuss them point by point. But first, let's talk about what the media dubbed "quote unquote" Satanic Panic. Now, from what I've been able to gather, the root of this originated in 1980 with the release of a book called Michelle Remembers, which was supposedly A psychologist used uh, some debunked methods uh, by today's standards to get uh, recovered memories from a woman, and she pieced these things together, and her claim is that she was abused ritualistically. Have you ever heard of this book? I have. It's been a long time ago that
2: I I remember it becoming a big deal.
1: Yeah, I... I hadn't heard anything about this, but the gist is the author Lawrence Padzer used uh, hypnosis over a 14-month period on a woman named Michelle Smith, who which recovered satanic abuse, which she was subjected to back in the 1950s. He was actually so convinced of the satanic abuse that he traveled all the way to the Vatican in 1978 to alert the Catholic Church about these events. Well, it didn't help, did it? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag of uh, QAnon. Hashtag. I'm, I'm going. Oh, I'm yeah. being ridiculous. Um, <laughs> book aside, uh, the term satanic panic uh, went worldwide in 1983 uh, during the McMartin preschool trial. Have you heard about this? I believe so. Um, I think so. Go on, though. I'll believe okay, heard about it. I, I'm i not going to be able to do a proper job in explaining this. So I'll, I will invite all of you out there in the Red Army to do a little Google research on your own, because this shit is fascinating. If you're into true crime, the case lasted seven years and it resulted in zero convictions. All the charges were dropped by 1990. And by the end, it had become the longest and most expensive series of criminal trials in American history. Think about that. In the entirety of America, by that point, this was the most expensive series of trials, ever, and it all revolved around supposed satanic abuse of children in a California preschool. These series of events are absolutely nuts. But there were there were arrests, acquittals, perjuries, mistrials, and a diagnosed case of paranoid schizophrenia of the woman who made the initial claims. Big surprise! <coughs> um, wow. Long story short, this this lit the media fuse that burned all through the eighties and a good part of the nineties. Now I think the the biggest satanic panic trial that most people will probably be familiar with is the West Memphis Three. That's what I was about to say as well. The West Memphis Three were these three teenagers who were convicted of murdering three young boys in 1993 in Arkansas. That's uh, to the west of us. You know, we're here in Tennessee. West uh, Memphis is right on the border of Memphis, Tennessee. Um, And they're both impoverished areas. You know, to use the term redneck would be probably too kind to some of these parts because they are really, really poor and a little can be backwards in their, you know, Thought their process. thinking, thinking, <laughs> um, uh, these, uh, this whole thing was hotly debated and it's been brilliantly chronicled in the uh, three HBO oh. documentaries called paradise lost. So I'm, I know you're familiar with it. Such so. a
2: satisfying conclusion too.
1: Not for the children,
2: but for the West Memphis three.
1: Yeah. they A lot of people to this day don't believe uh, that uh, they're innocent. And after having watched these documentaries, and uh, there's another documentary that— Peter uh, Jackson. Yeah. It's called West of Memphis, I think is what mm-hmm. it's called. And there's so much evidence to the contrary that they had nothing to do with it. Going as far that uh, Jesse Kelly, who was— the slow kid yep. of the fe- – That made the false confession. He made a false confession. And come to find out when the murders took place, he wasn't even there. in the area. Yep. He was wrestling in a high school wrestling tournament or something to that effect. Completely in a different part of you know the state. So it, it, the time frame doesn't ma- add up. But they, they were convicted. And it's all because they were weird kids. Yep. They were they were the complete opposite of what the norm was in that area. You know, they black fingertips, so that you know their nails and negative. And yeah, and mullets, but not not the kind of mullet that you know a white the, trashy mullet. Yeah, the best kind. This this <laughs> this, this mullet has frosted <clears throat> tips because they're because they love the devil. I don't know. It, it's it's so it's so stupid. But it, this really was uh, a media frenzy. It was a trial that was debated and mostly swayed because of public outrage. And so many people uh, said they saw these kids do stuff that they didn't. They've later recanted just because they, they were so convinced that they were guilty that they're like, well, we have to grease the wheels of justice and get these kids taken yeah, and, care of. And a
2: lot of that is the legal system. They want to get the conviction, get the people sentenced to move on. They, yeah. they don't They don't give a fuck. I mean,
1: truth. truthfully. Yeah. In 2010, the Arkansas Supreme Court decided to offer the West Memphis Three a plea deal. It was accepted in 2011, which effectively allowed them to retain their innocence, but at the same time still be legally guilty for the murders. This is called an Alford plea, and it basically protects the state from getting their shit sued sued out of them. Yes. They served 18 years in prison, but there's still people who believe they're not innocent. Um, Do you believe they're innocent?
2: Yeah, they never produced like produced any
1: evidence to make it seem like they were guilty. Yeah, they in fact over the past decade, they you know I mean DNA technology has evolved to such a point where they have been able to prove that there is DNA on the bodies of someone other than them because not a shred of their DNA was ever DNA. And it was
2: one of the it was, <coughs> it was one of the stepfathers. Uh, they they said that was, Terry.
1: Terry McMahon is that his name? It's something. No, that's shit. That's, that's <laughs> Terry McMahon's from Friday the Um Part Two. Um, fuck. Uh, it's Terry. It's Ter- Terry. Hobbs. Yep. that's his name. And and the. Uh, I mean, if, if you have not watched the
2: the series, definitely watch. It. I believe it's on HBO Max now.
1: I. It, um, it's so good. To seek them out and and the they they only skim the surface. Like I I went on a big kick of like looking this shit up.
2: You remember I when I first told you I had watched it for the first time. It was probably about. Uh, probably close to ten years ago. Now it was like probably like eight nine years ago, and you're like, dude, there's more episodes. I said, what? Yeah, and uh, it it just kept kind of progressing.
1: Yeah, HBO documentaries. Uh, f- even if it's something a subject you don't care about, dear, it, da- dear David. Oh my God, that yeah, cried dude, balled my eyes out. It's so fucking heart heart. I lived up next to you when I watched that one. Yeah, one. you did. I used to st- I used to steal your Wi-Fi back then. <laughs> 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 um. I know we're a little off track, but I swear this is all coming back around a trick or treat. Um, one of the big elements of why the West Memphis Three were sought out by police is because of the, the predominantly redneck town. Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jason Miss Kelly, they stood out like sore thumbs because they were huge metal heads. And just a few years early, earlier, there, uh, there was going to be a stage set of a witch hunt in a different form with a little thing called the PMRC. Fuck you, Tipper Gore. Uh, PMRC stands for the Parents Music Resource Center. It was a committee formed in 1985 by Tipper Gore um, for the purpose of censoring music her and her cunt friends in (laughs) Washington deemed lewd. Uh, Most popular music genres were targeted, but hard rock and metal were particularly on Tipper Gore's radar when her committee created the Filthy Fifteen, which were the 15 songs they deemed... The most "quote unquote" dangerous. Um, so most of these are rock and metal songs, but there's some other ones on here as well. I'll just I'll read them out. Number one on the list: "Darling Nikki" by Prince, uh, and it has been labeled of sex and masturbation. This is actually the one that got the the ball rolling because one of Tippers' children had a copy of that's Purple. number one. Purple Rain, and I guess she was incensed that uh, Prince was. Singing about one of his groupies, uh, not getting to fuck him, but still masturbating, you know, in the lobby because that's as close as she can get. Um, but, uh, maybe, maybe if, uh, Al Gore had spent more time, uh, pleasing his wife and less time, inventing, Excelsior, inventing the internet, uh, maybe she wouldn't have been so fucking tight, ty- uh, you know, uptight about these kind of things. Um, I, I love Prince. I'm a huge Prince fan. Um, and admittedly uh, if i'm if i'm like in the car with my mom and darling nikki comes on i switch that song cuz i'm like <laughs> i don't want my mom hearing a song about masturbation while i'm around so i can kind of understand it but i am 100% not in favor of censorship
2: no it's artistic freedom that's yeah. the whole point of it yeah
1: that's why we have uh, you know uh, well, number one, you know, you're a parent. I'm not a parent. You have a different perspective on this. But like if it's something you don't want your kids exposed to, uh, do you do you uh, champion the cause of censorship or you just keep it from them?
2: No, if I mean, you you know, my kids, my kids, they watch horror movies because I grew up watching horror movies. Uh, I let them listen to music they want to listen to. My only rule with that is, you know, if there's boobies on the screen, hey, cover your eyes. You're, I mean, they're they're seven and nine. So it's like pussies. Yeah. And but at the same time too, you know, uh, there might be other parents out there who are very. Um, what if there's only one boob? He only, yeah, only one boob. That's fine. He only has closed one eye. That's how. It works. But you know, um, but I'm I'm competent enough as a parent to realize if something is really vulgar, I'm not going to put it on for my kids. But at the same time, if my kids are um, accessing things things on YouTube, um, which is kind of topical now with a lot of kids, you need to be there. As a parent, to be like, "Hey, this might not be good for you." Instead of taking the blame, and saying it's these YouTube creators' fault, it'd be my fault as a parent for allowing my kids to watch such things.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, coming number two on the Filthy Fifteen, we have Sheena Easton, which is another uh, Prince-related uh, topic because you know they were they were always intertwining in terms of you know I don't know I don't know if your your finger to uh, to uh, your your masturbation uh, signals <laughs> you're showing me over there are accurate if they, if they intertwine genitalia-wise. I don't know if that's true or not, but they certainly they did You Got the Look together, um, the song from Sign of the Times. But uh, her song Sugar Walls was uh, added to the Filthy 15 for sex. Number three, Judas Priest, Eat Me Alive, Sex and Violence. Um, if you didn't know that Rob Halford was gay, listen to these lyrics. <laughs> Spread eagle to the wall, you're well equipped to take it all. Eat. <laughs> Me alive <laughs> Eat Me alive. <laughs> um, yeah, so sex and violence because there's a little bit of that uh you know that kinda kinky uh S and M aspects going I mean, on. I have there. You not seen Rob uh, Alford. <laughs> like. or else I, I. He was he was dressed like the fucking gimp from from fucking <laughs> <Pulp> Fiction. <laughs> Pulp Fiction. So I mean like what what would you expect? It's a great song though. Defenders of the Faith 1984 fucking badass album. Number 4 Vanity, another Prince uh, fucking protégé, uh Strap on Robbie Bray, it's another song I added for sex. Number 5, Motley Crue's song Bastard for violence and language. All right. <laughs> uh, number 6. ACDC's Let Me Put My Love Into You, and that's added for sex. Um, Yeah, there's really not a lot of uh, innuendo in that. Um, You're you're lucky that this didn't say, let me put my dick into you. (laughs) She she just did it. Bon Scott, that's the song Bon Scott would have written. (laughs) Brian Johnson, he got a little more, you know. (laughs) Pussy. (laughs) Uh, Number seven, and this is going to come back into... uh, into play in just a bit number seven twisted sister we're not gonna take it for violence all right yeah <laughs> why 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 is this violent because it's a song of defiance they literally don't ever say anything violent in the song they literally just say hey whatever you throw away that we don't was want. it
2: more so they saw the video for it
1: and that's what they they took that well, as that's possible but why ban the song then you know what I mean? Like yeah. that, that's—I think that's a stupid reason. Number eight, Madonna, dress you up, sex. I—I I don't remember this Madonna song. And of all the Madonna songs to add to this list, uh, that would have been probably the last one. Like, I would have like thought a virgin. It. I mean, hey, touch, touch for touch the, the very the first. time. <laughs> Timber's like, "We can't have that, America. <laughs> we can't have that." Number nine, and this one may they, there might be a point here. Wasp. Animal fuck like a beast. Sex, <laughs> language, violence. This this was banned. It wasn't even put on the fucking album. They they had to record uh, release it as like an EP single kind of thing because the record company would not allow them to put it on their debut album, even though it's one of the songs they're I mean, most known for. <laughs> God bless you, Blackie Lawless. We're gonna talk about you a little later on. Uh, number ten. Deaf Leopard, High and Dry, Saturday Night, Drug and Alcohol Use. Okay, <laughs> listen to the song. Def <laughs> yeah. Well, the drummer had two arms back then, and that's and that's 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 that's, <laughs> and that's, that's two that's two arms that he could commit crimes with. Um, <laughs> just think, you're that's, less likely to be ar- carjacked by a guy with one arm. <laughs>
2: It's just statistics. It's statistics.
1: Oh man! Uh, plus, man, the, the demonic rock and roll. If you let the devil into your heart, and you have two hands, he's gonna really use them for holding. Take my hand. Um, number eleven, merciful fate. Goddamn right, King Diamond into the coven. Like uh, that's on there for the occult. This is this is the only song on here that you can make the argument that is like Satanic. So I know they're singling out a lot of sex and violence, but the, you know, the occult stuff was very much on the radar, of the PMRC. And a lot of those bands, uh, maybe uh, one other one on here, we'll get to in a second, were pretty blatant with trying to ruffle the feathers of the conservative Christian movement and, and all of that. And, you know, and, uh, you know, bring their children to the dark side, where they'll you know be addicted to hot topic for the next you know twenty years of their life. But there's really not a lot of uh, um, not a lot of not a lot of King Diamond fans sacrificing babies that I'm aware of no that i'm aware of just having a good time just having a good time killing babies <laughs> uh number 12 black sabbath trashed for drug and alcohol use this is interesting because this is the born again lineup you know of black sabbath that was this is probably the most pressed they ever got during this lineup <laughs> because they they sure as hell were not in heavy rotation on you know mtv or on the radio in fact born again wasn't even released in america uh, until much later um, but mtv might have shown zero the hero the music video on occasion but i don't know it's not even that song trashed it's just a fun drinking song
0: hit the bottle again but there was no tequila <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the, 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 my brain but there was no tequila <laughs> number 13 <laughs> mary jane girls in my house um i the mary jane girls i don't quote me on this but i think they're also there's ties to prince there and um she really has a hard on for prince and prince uh, uh, associates you know, prince and his princesses <laughs> um i also think they may have been involved with rick james bitch that's what i was thinking
2: so with the uh that they, they were involved with rick
1: I love you, marry We should sing all these songs. <laughs> Number 14, Venom Possessed. This is, uh, marked for a cult. And, um, yep, Venom, they were, they were the most outlandishly upfront about like, we're just making fucking satanic music. And they were a complete gimmick. <laughs> um, they, they dressed like fucking members of Spinal Tap. Um, they got on stage and they had all sorts <laughs> of, uh, shitty, uh, shitty concerts and Venom was not very good. Um, they had, Maybe three or four really good songs, but overall, Venom was a complete fucking joke. Sorry if I'm ruffling feathers, but I'm just calling it like I see it. And number 15, one of the more infamous on the filthy fifteen, "She Bop" by Cindy Lauper, which is a song about masturbation. <laughs> Cindy Lauper, I would totally fuck her. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I find her old
2: vinyl, I look at her was like,
1: "Yep, she. I mean, she's great. She's aged pretty well." <laughs> I see her in commercials all the time. For she has like I have fibromyalgia or, or some shit, you know. I take Zyrtec now; it allows me to she longer. <laughs> if you have fibromyalgia, it causes your fingers to tense up while you're. Pew, 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 pew. Although, if you're really rich, can you just not pay someone to do that? I think it's the satisfaction of doing it yourself. DIY. La- DIY. I'm, I'm, DIY. Like, I'm lazy. I'm lazy. I'm She's lazy. very punk rock. <laughs> I'm so I'm so unusual. <laughs> I'm gonna sh- gonna she bop all night long. Okay, Captain Lou, <laughs> watch. Man, she could have paid Captain Lou Albano in his later years to flick her bean, and and um, and he could have said, "You got a brain like a dehydrated BB." Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> she would have loved it. She yeah, loved I, I would have loved it. Why didn't that sex tape leak? <laughs> We missed that on Such Great Entertainment. Uh, Thankfully, Dee Snider, a twisted sister, and the legendary Frank Zappa were joined by John fucking Denver. And they would articulately come to Rock's defense and would testify to the Senate against censoring music. This led to the parental advisory sticker. would just let kids know which albums to buy from that point on. It wasn't intended that way. But it absolutely had the opposite effect. Of, it made people want them more. Yeah, like three live crew or two live, two crew? live crew. Two live crew. Three me live so crew is a fucking wrestling thing. Ooh, me so home. We love you, long time. It's racist. <laughs> and and people wanted that in music back <laughs> in the night. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Different time. <laughs> uh, okay, I know we just covered a lot of ground, uh, but the themes of Satanic Panic and the, the demonization of rock music are very prevalent in Trick or Treat. Do you think these elements are handled well in the film?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think um, they make a great case because it's funny that, that Ozzy's the one that's kind of pushing for it all on on TV. Yeah, playing the Reverend. So I think that's just funny. Uh, I, I think they could have went harder on it, um, but
1: I, I think it's handled well in the movie. Yeah, I, I wish that... like there, there needed to be more little scenes of, like, there should have been, like, a PTA meeting... Where About the Eddie, Music. Eddie's mom going and her being conflicted because you know her. She's her son as being an outcast, but at the same time, you know, like, well, you know, I prefer. Why don't you play with the, these kids over here? You know, they have popped she's, collars. She's listening to. The, <laughs> she popped. She popped. <laughs> Go play with her. She had a. She has a very very hunky boyfriend in the movie who dresses like Rambo. I think his name is Stan. We'll get to that a little later. Um. <laughs> Unfortunately, I I don't know if this is intentional or unintentional, but they kind of make the point that Metal is satanically evil in the movie. So, it's kind of like Nightmare 2 again, where it's like, okay, we're going to have all these homosexual undertones, but they're also not handled very well in terms of, like, what does this mean to the overall story? Like, is it a story where Freddy helps a kid uh, get on his homosexuality? Or is it where he has to kiss a woman to, to kill the homosexuality inside yeah, of him? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I and see in, that. And in this movie, it's, you know, Eddie is, Metal is like the one positive thing he has going on in his life. He's dumped dumped on like constantly by people. And then all of a sudden his hero dies and he has this last copy, you know, of his this album and, and he listens to it. And it's like, oh, well, I can get revenge on my my bullies uh, from my, my satanic friend on the other side of the radio. I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it still makes for a fun movie, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really curtail the whole movement that was going on in a, in a way that, light. that Hollywood probably normally <laughs> would do, you know, I I could speak for days about the the pros and cons of Hollywood activism, but I think in this case, like, yeah, let's argue against censorship. And so they're not really making the case for music being censored, but they are kind of showing that music can be dangerous if you allow um, an undead rock star to possess your radio. If his mom had been around more, maybe this wouldn't have fucking happened. Oh, my God. If she hadn't been she-bopping all day long... (laughs) I that scene of offer on the radio. <laughs> and now that we've got the groundwork laid, I think this would be a great time for Eddie to read the synopsis for Trick or Treat. Eddie, please do us the honor. <clears throat> what are you afraid of? It's only rock and
2: roll. This mesmerizing horror adventure takes you into the terrifying dark side of rock and roll. Mark Price, Family Ties, stars as Eddie Weinbauer, A teenage outcast who idolizes Sammy Kerr, Tony Fields, a heavy metal rock superstar. After Sammy dies a violent death, his spirit returns to help Eddie get even with his high school tormentors. In doing so, Sammy begins to gain control over Eddie's life and brings him deeper into the world of the occult. When Eddie realizes that he has become the tool of Sammy's evil rampage, he attempts to stop him. The horrifying events that follow leave no one unscathed. Now,
1: with their demonically headbanging script in hand, producers Michael Murphy and Joel Soison set out to make their cinematic dreams come true. But who would direct their macabre masterpiece? We have Charles Martin Smith in the directing role. Now, you may know him from some such works as the TV movie Boris and Natasha, which stars Dave Thomas, who is in Strange Brew with Rick Moranis, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. He was also in 50-50, which stars Robert Hayes, who was in Airplane 2, with William Shatner, who was in Miss Congeniality, with Ernie Hudson, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. He also directed Dolphin Tale 1 and 2, and the greatest film about a multi-sport canine athlete, <laughs> Airbud. Charles directing Actionman speaks for itself, but his claim to fame prior to this actually was as an actor. He appeared in such films as American Graffiti, Herbie Goes Bananas, John Carpenter's Starman, The Untouchables, I Love Trouble, and Deep Impact. The choice of Charles Martin Smith as a first-time director might strike people as peculiar. The -the behind-the-scenes story is even more bizarre. Freddy's Revenge producers Michael Murphy and Joel Sohson had screened more than 40 candidates, and they were about to announce their choice to direct the movie when a friend told them of Smith's availability and his interest in directing a film. With all this being said, there might be a reason that Charles was probably considered for a directing job, even though he had no experience in the field. That reason was Charles' friendship with a Hollywood legend by the name of Ron Howard, who he met on the set of American Graffiti. In fact, they're such good friends that Charles was a groomsman at Ron's wedding. So, with that in mind... Does Charles get his directing break because of nepotism, or is working as an actor just a great on-the-job training to potentially become a director? Both,
2: I think it's both. It's more to me when you when you word it that way, Ron Howard. I mean,
1: this is this a Happy Days fame around this time. Uh, well, I mean, uh, by this point, he's he's directing. Uh, uh this would be eighty-four. Splash? Does he do Splash? I believe he did do Splash. I love Splash, Daryl Hannah, John John Candy.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, 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 there's a little bit of nepotism there, though. I think that's that's part of the reason why, because he had some ties to the, uh, a guy who's you know been in the Hollywood scene for quite a while. But at the same time, I mean, maybe they want to take a chance on somebody that's new, a fresh, fresh view, fresh take on everything. Um,
1: nepotism or not, it can't hurt to. To know someone that influential in Hollywood, especially someone who himself is a very successful director. So, going into production, he did ask for directing tips from Ron Howard. Charles had this to say I did talk to Ronnie Howard before this movie. He said, Make sure your storyboards are in good shape. So, uh, Charles has said to the directing chair. Um, it kind of comes across pretty well. But behind the scenes, Charles wasn't as graceful. He had this to say about his transition to behind the camera. There's a quote floating around somewhere. I told an interviewer that I, that the one thing I'm not interested in doing is directing a film. Now I'm directing a film. <laughs> now I'm directing a film. I got more and more interested in doing, doing it while the, doing the film Never Cry Wolf. I used that as a three year film symposium. So I think that kind of backs up a little bit of, you know, you know, on the job training. Um, if I hadn't went all through this, um, do you think that you would have, Do you, if if you didn't know anything I just told you, would you think that this was made by a director with no experience?
2: No, no. I think for, for the time, it, it suits the time period, but the way it's shot, it, it, it doesn't look awful. I've seen a lot worse. No, experienced directors. It, it's
1: actually made me appreciate this movie overall more, considering uh, how tight it is. Yeah, there's probably some some issues in the pacing, especially in the third act. But I, I think this movie is as competently made as you will ever see a low-budget movie from 1986 yes. um, with a cult following. It's certainly better than Spooky's. <laughs> um, which came out the same year, uh, but that's a that's a tale for another day. And when Charles came on board, the script wasn't finished, so in, d- in addition to being a first-time director, he also became a first-time writer. Producer Michael Murphy had this to say about Charles contributing to Trick or Treat. Well, there are some good things, and there are some bad things. We really felt that he had a sense of the treatment that we felt we were weak on, and he had the same sort of sense of humor that we do. Um, There's an old saying that every movie is actually three movies. There's the movie that is written, there's the movie that is filmed, and then there's the film that is edited. Trick or Treat was edited by James Swartz Jaffe, who worked on a lot of well-known movies, including Terms of Endearment, Pretty in Pink, Sam Elmo's Fire, but Charles had his hands directly in the writing and directing. With that being said, do you think this movie was saved in the editing Or does Charles deserve credit for just making a really good movie?
2: I think it's editing. I mean, you can always argue it's both. But to me, I feel like it's edited very well. Um, I don't understand why a lot of these films, I understand they have deadlines. But if you do not have a polished script ready to roll, why you would think it's going to end up being successful?
1: I I think just in the way that the deals are done in Hollywood, because it a lot of it is just money laundering. This is flat yeah. out, especially back in those days, because they're getting money from third party channels and Master. it's like oh, yeah, the more <mumbles> but they had to get a you know a, a return on their investment within a certain amount of times, or Polly Walnuts is going to come break their fucking ankles. Now, that may not be the case in this movie, but it's it's very clear that, like, they didn't have a script. They had a treatment, and they kind of worked on that progress as they went along. But that's just—it's all too—the the, the newest Star Wars movie, um, uh, fucking Rise of Skywalker, they were, they were rewriting that movie as they were making it. And if you've ever seen it, you would realize that's it, absolutely the case. Halloween 5 is, like, the perfect example yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah. That's much better than the new Star Wars movie, but it's still not a good movie <laughs> uh, actually let's go back to Star Wars it just uh, as a perfect example uh Charles worked on American Graffiti that was one of George Lucas's first movies uh, it's a movie that is sort of like sort of in the vein of. Easy Rider, where it's not really this like three act narrative structure. It's sort of just like a, a preview into like, where Easy Rider was sort of like this, this view of like the counterculture at the time. American Graffiti was like a love letter to the way it felt to be a kid growing up in the fifties. And they're, they're not really strong narrative films, but they, they have a sentimentality to, to them. So when George Lucas goes to make Star Wars, he has all these grand ideas and he films all these things and he edits them and it is a fucking train wreck. It is an absolute fucking train wreck. But then somebody else goes in, it's like, let me see what I can do. And they edit it into a movie that is not only coherent, but broke new ground in terms of special effects and storytelling and so on and so forth. So as much as I want to say this movie was saved in the editing. I think that can't be the entirety of it because there's so much craft in the little moments, and so I don't know. I'm kind of I'm kind of torn on this. I, I think that it certainly didn't hurt to have a reputable editor on the movie, but. Um, I do think that this guy has proved himself as being a solid director, even though this was his first movie out the gate. I mean, it's no Air Bud, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, what is? I mean, in the hierarchy of great films all, of all time, you know, there's uh, Seventh Seal, Airbud, and right under it, Citizen Kane. with <laughs> the Wind. It's problematic, but still, yeah. it's, it's there. Yeah. Very, Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of racism in Airbud too, because um, speciesism, I guess, would be because they they don't want that dog playing basketball. And god damn it, he got his chance, and he fucking won. He fucking won. <laughs> right. um, I, th- I think we've adequately made the case that Charles he was the right choice for the role, you know, of directing, and him not previously directing before just makes it all the more interesting. Uh, one person who was repeatedly singing the praises of Charles Martin Smith and his abilities is trick-or-treat star Mark Price. Mark had this to say about Charles. Charlie's not just an actor, he's an incredible actor. He worked on many big-budget pictures and has seen him put fine pictures together, molded and worked out. So in addition to knowing his stuff about the technical end of making a movie, he certainly sympathizes with me as an actor and knowing what I'm going through. Now more than anything, I think this is why an actor can transition to becoming a great director because they understand the difficulties that an actor is going to be facing on set. How important is it, from your point of view, for a director to be hands on with an actor's performance?
2: I think it really just depends on the actor, though, because there's you know you have a lot of people like Daniel Day Lewis who fucking like submerses himself into a role, um, but I I think- AKA being an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But in in movies like this, I think it's – if you're shooting something, and a lot of times if you're a writer and director, you know exactly what you want. You know exactly what you want out of that performance, and it's very – Comfortable for them to go and say, hey, this is what we're looking for. This is what we want. There's some actors that might do that, and especially like somebody who I'm like thinking like comedy wise, like a Seth Rogen or Steve Carell and Will Ferrell, who does a lot of uh, improv- improvising. It's kind of a little different. But I, I think it's especially in a movie like this. It's very important that he's hands on. I
1: you hit the nail on the head. It, the the difference in movies and the way they're approached is going to make a big difference in whether or not a hands-on director in terms of performance is going to even be necessary. I love Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins is is a fucking pro. He's like the best of what you could expect from an actor coming prepared and is going to knock it out of the park. He only does like if you if you ask him to do more than three takes, he's going to tell you no. And he's Anthony Hopkins, so you're not going to be like, well, fuck all you. We're, moving, we're moving on. We're yeah. moving. So if he can't do it in three, uh, he's not going to do it at all. But then you've got someone like Stanley Kubrick, who mentally breaks down fucking olive oil. I can't think of her name. Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall um, and her, uh, from from the movie Suburban Commando. That's what she's best known for. Um, <laughs> I was frozen today. I was frozen today. Um, but <laughs> He mentally breaks her down to get that performance. So uh it's it's an interesting difference of opinion in, in how you work with people and and what can be expected on set. And I, I don't think there's necessarily a right or a wrong way. Um but we definitely need more people like William Freakin shooting guns on set. That's I think that motivates. <laughs> if you want if you want most. reaction, that's how you get it. Um <laughs> uh, Mark's work post trick or treat has been A little more in the kid-friendly realm, which makes all the more sense when you find out that Mark really isn't a fan of the horror genre. He had this to say. I guess you can't really say that I'm a real horror fan. When I was a kid, I was a horror fan. I grew up watching the same movies everybody else watched, finding them interesting and stuff, but drifted away from it at one point. I went to see The Exorcist, and it scared me so badly, I didn't see another horror movie of any kind for a long time. When this came up, I said, well... I had to do my homework on horror movies and started watching more. Before Trick or Treat, the last movie I did as an actor was Starman, which was John uh, which John Carpenter directed. I've boned up on Carpenter's films since then, still from the best. All right, do you get a John Carpenter vibe from Trick or Treat? I I do I get a little bit of Christine vibe from it. That was that's I think Christine, Christine's being a uh, mind for for uh, inspiration a lot lately. Um, but, yeah, I think beyond the similarities in the story of Christine, you know, the the slow uh, persuasion to, to evil and that kind of stuff. I, I don't really get a John Carpenter vibe otherwise, and I guess some of it just has to do with the fact that this has a rock score rather than you know a, an Alan Howarth um, John Carpenter uh, synth score and jizz <laughs> fest. Absolutely, you're right. you right. Go on. But um, I I mean, I guess you could you could argue that I mean, for just from terms of competency, that like you know it's it's Carpenter in that way. It's very utilitarian. It's not a lot of wasted time and ancillary details, but yeah, I don't I don't get a John Carpenter vibe beyond just surface level parallels to Christine. That's what I got from it. Trick or Treat wasn't a huge financial success, but it more than doubled its budget, and I'm sure it did even better on home video, but I don't have those numbers uh, to definitely say yes or no. That being said, we never got a sequel. However, over the years, Trick or Treat has really grown in popularity, thanks to the internet. So, of course, fans have been clamoring for the return of Sammy Kerr. Charles had this to say about the prospect of a trick-or-treat sequel. You hear me talk, you hear talk like that, but I haven't been involved in any such conversations. I'm not sure that I would do another film that has that many special effects. It just bogs it down, and I really feel that my strong suit has been more to do with actors anyway. Now, it would appear on the nose that Charles wouldn't be interested in returning for a sequel, but for the sake of argument, let's say that we got, pun intended, the band back together, and everything's a go. Would you want to see a Trick or Treat sequel? And if you would, what would you want to see in it?
2: I feel like at this point, everything is being... Uh, from the past, is being poked and prodded. I know The Exorcist is being re- revamped. Not uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, David Gordon Green's doing it. Um I do think he is a competent director. Uh, Absolutely. I just don't want the... Yeah, well, The Exorcist is... I, over the years, Halloween has always been my favorite horror movie, and I think, you know, it's it's neck and neck with The Exorcist, because as an adult, the more I watch The Exorcist, the more I appreciate it. It's such a great movie. Um But I think... I think there would be a possibility of somebody. It would, um, but if they did it, it really to me it really wouldn't be a sequel. It would be um, sort sure, of a reboot, maybe wait, like a like a reboot, but maybe Soft reboot, but a yeah, soft reboot. But like if you know Ragman's uh, Mark Price is you know the dad, and uh, maybe he's haunted by the past of what happened, and they're doing this big show as like it's like the anniversary of Sammy Kerr's death. And metal metal bands are all getting together, and they resurrect, you know, Sammy Kerr, or something like that happens. Mm. It's like an Ozfest, but it's for Sammy.
1: That's that's kind of an interesting idea. Uh, sort of, I, I like the idea of a movie, the the framework of a movie of someone ignoring the past to a point where it's inevitable; it's going to return. So, maybe like, you know, he's straightened his life out and you've got and the, the crew cut and, you know, contemporary is, music. is like, I only listen to Christopher Cross records. <laughs> KG. <Kenny> yeah. <laughs> well, he's really big into flute solos now. <laughs> but yeah, I think that could be really cool. Um, no Jethro Tools. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that's too, 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 too metal. They won, too metal. They, won, they won a metal Grammy, so that's that's too much. Too that's metal. enough to cross the line. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we'll get into Tony Fields as we continue on, but he's not with us. Uh, you'd have to recast the main role, which it's not as difficult, I guess, as maybe like recasting Freddy Krueger. But is that going to be a hamper and people being able to enjoy it?
2: No, he he's a he's not a, a he's a horror icon in our eyes, but He's not had multiple sequels, and we've come to love Robert England for what he's brought to the character. He is Freddy Krueger, and no one can tell me different.
1: Agreed. Many of the characters of Trigger Treat may fall prey to the sinister rhythms of that devilish rock and roll, but above the normal fare of Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, and Black Sabbath, their damnation comes courtesy of Wilmington, North Carolina's favorite or least favorite son, depending on who you ask. We have Tony Fields as the rock god Sammy Kerr. So let me give you the background on on Tony. <laughs> Tony moved to Hollywood to pursue a career and started performing as a backup dancer in Debbie Reynolds' nightclub act. He found a job on the show, Solid Gold, as a dancer in 1979. Fields to parlay that gig into becoming a successful choreographer. Or Is that how you say it? Choreographer. 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 On such films as Summer School. Fucking love it. And D- Dream a Little Dream. Fucking love it, too. Oh, my God. Mark Harmon. <laughs> Dude, Summer School fucking rules. <laughs> uh, he also appeared in a chorus line with Michael Douglas, who was in Ant Man, with Paul Rudd, who was in Ghostbusters Afterlife. You just got butt to fight. Ah. <laughs> Um He was in Captain EO as well as the Michael Jackson music video for "Beat It" and Thriller. By the way, Thriller was directed by John Landis. It was directed the Blues Brothers. Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, Reportedly, Wasp frontman Blackie Lawless had auditioned to play Sammy Kerr, and he was close to getting the role. It was even offered to do the whole soundtrack. But if he got the part, uh, that was not going to happen. Like, they... They were close to agreeing to it, but then Fastway got the got the deal. I guess maybe it was cheaper. And I guess Blackie didn't like the idea of having to lip sync to somebody else's music. I understand that. So Blackie refused the role, uh, telling Smith that he didn't need Fastway's music, that um, he had his own band to do the music. So soundtrack aside, do you think Blackie Lawless would have been a better fit as Sammy Kerr? No, I don't think so. I have... I have conflicting feelings about this because Blackie is not an actor, but he's so fucking charismatic that I think if you limited the dialogue, which they do for Sammy Kerr, you know, in the existing film, I think he could have done absolutely fine, but it definitely would have changed... the entire movie, if the soundtrack had been different,
2: um, and that's that was my thought process with it, is because
1: I love the soundtrack so much. I love I love Fastway. I'm a bigger fan of Wasp, <laughs> but I I don't know that that would have that made. I think it made date the movie a little more because Fastway they're they're not really a full-on heavy metal band. They're a little more of a classic rock with heavy metal twinges to them. So it's not, you're not going to listen to that and say, well, that that came out in 1986. It feels a, not contemporary, but it feels a little more timeless, I guess yeah. is the point I'm trying to make. Um Blackie wasn't the only rock god offered the role because Gene Simmons was also given the chance, but he declined, but he decided to do a smaller role. As the radio DJ Nuke for the same price, (laughs) five million dollars. We already came to, (laughs) and um, and then the rest of the money went to the production. Uh, Do you think Gene would have done better as Sammy Kerr? I think,
2: like charisma wise, he would have been great. But at that time, Gene's such a big guy. I, I don't think it would have played off as well compared to how the way that Sammy moves with his, you know, his dance background. I don't. I. I don't think it would work, and I almost think it would be a
1: distraction. Blackie was well known amongst metal fans, but not. But 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 not the mainstream, and the way Gene Simmons was was known. Gene Simmons is also a really ugly person, so in that regard, he should always be in horror films. <laughs> but <laughs> but, um, yeah, I. I don't think I could see him without just seeing. You know Gene Simmons, the fucking demon from Kiss. You know makeup or not. So I, can you picture Gene Simmons up there uh, lip singing Fastway songs? Oh, there's no fucking way. <laughs> there's no fucking way. And and he would have held them out to like, well, you're gonna have to pay Kiss. You're gonna have to pay Kiss a bunch of millions of dollars for the licensing, and we'll get all the merchandising rights, and you will get nothing, and you will like it, <laughs> and we'll make a trick or treat replica of my tongue. <laughs> They missed out, man. They got a print of fucking money on that that only Gene Simmons would have benefited from. Um, (laughs) He's a smart businessman. Fuck everybody else. But here's a a different way to look at it. Do either Blackie or Gene's casting, do you think they would have improved the box office?
2: Blackie, not not so much. I do think seeing Gene Simmons as the lead possibly would, just because he's a little bit more well-known. I mean, point. kids had
1: kind of had a, a, a resurgence in 83. So, like, I mean, they're riding high off of basically the second big era of their career. So I, I don't know that like to, to pay Gene Simmons what he would have been asking may have made it to where it wouldn't have been successful financially because they would have had to put so much money in the back end. So, I don't know. I'm kind of torn on this. It could have really gone either way. It could have been a hugely successful movie based off of his, you know, rock star, you know. Or it could have been Kiss Me to the Phantom all over again. Well, everybody fucking loves Kiss Me to the Phantom. (laughs) (laughs) He's not a good actor. Not at all. We'll we'll see that a little later on. Um, All the same, let's not cut Tony Field short because he is fantastic. But before we get... Specifically into his performance, let's talk about the Sammy Kerr character. Huge rock star Sammy Kerr is denied a homecoming concert in his hometown and shortly after he perishes in a hotel fire at the age of 38. Because of this, I find myself debating his motivations. So, I want to get your take on this. Was he planning on getting revenge at the show or did the show being canceled cause him to commit ritualistic suicide so he could get revenge? Because none of this really, his motives are not clearly made apparent.
2: Yeah. There's a there's a big flaw there. I mean, to me, I just look at it as he's want, he's wanting to get revenge on all the people talking shit about metal. But then well, again, it doesn't.
1: He, he grew up there, and I and uh, and a lot of the rhetoric that you hear Ragman say about stuff that like that, Sammy Kerr has said. You know, uh, I I think that he he wanted to play this concert specifically as like a fuck you look. I got out of this town and I made it not so much I'm gonna come back and fucking murder you you know uh but when that got cancelled I guess he recorded an album that had back masking in it and he committed ritualistic suicide knowing that someone would pay it play it on the radio backwards to Cause the town to do something. I don't know. It it's there's there's such a good nugget of an idea there, but it's just not. It's not fleshed out. It's not fleshed out in a in a meaningful way, and that's that's just one of those things that, like, as a I hate to say a kid, as a teenager, seeing this, I kind of just let slide because entertainment was just was good entertainment. But this this podcast they have to look at things in a more critical way. And, man, it's made some good movies uh, less good for me. Does that, doesn't that does that kind of suck, you know, having, yeah. to, having to view things in a more critical eye? But, I mean, it. I think that this is a major flaw of the movie. There just isn't a clear motiv- motivation there. And it isn't like you even need to give too much. You just need a couple of uh, throwaway lines of dialogue to really fill in the gaps, to, to give it enough to suspend your disbelief. But... I like the idea. I just think that there's, it leaves you wanting a little a little more. Uh, either way, Sammy's plan manifests in the form of his final album, which is called Songs in the Key of Death, which is an obvious homage to Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. By the way, his plan is to get Nuke to play it on the radio, which will cause mass hysteria, death mutilation, yada, 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 yada. I really like the element of Sammy essentially seducing Eddie through hysteria when the record is played backwards. But in my opinion, once this really gets going, Sammy shifts from this ethereal presence to corporeal. So he's spirit and then he's made flesh. Um, For instance, at one point... Eddie's attempting to unplug his stereo is thwarted when he gets shocked. And lo and behold, flesh and blood Sammy comes out of his speaker. From this point on, around the 50 minute mark, Sammy is basically Horace Pinker from Shocker. Shocker! Shocker! Shocker. The dudes of ra- ra- uh, wrath. <laughs> Dude. Oh, this is a stupid <laughs> name. God, we were all, all over Kiss's dick on this episode. We really are. Um, so. What do you what do you think about when Sammy becomes flesh and blood again? Like, does that detract from the movie, or are you just along for the ride? It, 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 these are one of those movies, man. Like, you
2: can't sit here and, and break down everything and just want it to be like, well, we're gonna get to point A to point B. It, it, it's supposed to be a wild ride. It's supposed to be a it's supposed to be a metal movie essentially. And I think. Um, I think it works. It's fine. Like I said, it's not it's not meant to be like when they made this movie, they're not like, oh, this is gonna win best picture. Oh I think
1: you're right, but I, I think this is just a divide in the in in a in a way of thinking. Because I think it's it's a case of them trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're making a somewhat serious uh, cause it's played pretty fucking serious up until this point. You know, it's a slow burn, not full on like haunted house creepy, but like there, there's that kind of, you know, shadows and you know that kind of that ethereal feeling going on in the air. But then after this point, it just becomes you know fucking Looney Tunes hijinks. And the when the movie The Ring came out. I heard all this hype about it, and I'm working in a video store at the time. So I'm like, oh, as soon as this gets released, I'm going to, you know, snatch up that copy and go home and watch it. And I'm really digging this movie. Number one, Naomi Watts could fucking get it. Mm. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> I love it. I love Mulholland Drive where she cries and flicks her beans. It's so fucking sexy. <laughs> Thank you, David Lynch. But <laughs> In this movie, I'm really, really digging it. And then a fucking girl crawls out of a TV. That's when I lose. I'm like, okay, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> because I like the idea of it's like this presence of it's like beyond our understanding of something influencing us. And when Sammy is doing that from the radio, it's it's this idea of being seduced by evil rather than, okay, well, now it's just a guy. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I get, I get, I get what you're saying. Uh,
2: I, I just think a lot of the times too, and I know we won't talk about this because we'll save it for a later date. But like the new Halloween movie, I think a lot of people have a certain expectations to movies instead of just being like, "Well, this is supposed to be a slash movie. It's not supposed to be anything more than just a, a
1: ride." And once it's over with, you let it go. Well, I, I, th- I think things can be, can be, both be, uh, schlocky entertainment, but also, you know, be consistently tonal th- throughout the movie. And I feel like this is, this is two movies that are, both entertaining, but it doesn't go enough far. It doesn't go enough in the schlocky direction to be fun in a way of a later era Freddy Krueger movie, and it's not reserved enough to be like a completely serious good horror film. You know what I mean? Alright, once Sammy is physically in the world, I feel Trick or Treat loses its creepy edge and drifts more into what you would expect from one of the later Freddy sequels. Uh, Or, shocker. Shocker! (laughs) (laughs) Um, Being that this came from the people who were directly involved with Not Mary on Street 2, it's actually surprising that the possibilities of Eddie being possessed by the spirit spirit of Sammy wasn't explored. Would Sammy physically possessing Eddie have been better than him turning into electricity and jumping in and out of speakers and sticking his foot in a toilet and and being having his powers diffused?
2: Shocker! Shocker! <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, I think it would have been really cool, but I would take away from from the whole the whole bit of Sammy because I feel like Sammy's aesthetic look is great, like the character of Sammy Kerr. But seeing him possess Mark Price wouldn't make it like uh... like I could get maybe like he's possessing him to get them to kill the other people for him kind of deal yeah but then you you really you're literally rehashing completely Nightmare Two well
1: I mean which I know they're the producers but it's it's pretty clear that they were like they wanted this this idea to work so they're they're trying variations on it so I mean I can't blame them entirely um it, it's just I don't know I I. The thing about, and I guess we'll probably talk about this when we get to Mark Price, like you can't go too far with that angle because if if he's possessed and he's killing people... He's gonna be somewhat complicit in it because he's allowing, yeah, allowing you know, it to happen, so it's like the the Darth Vader principle, like Darth Vader, I know we talk about Star Wars Star Wars it's Return return the Jedi, he turns back to the light, but he still had to die. He's like, you fucking murdered a bunch of people like okay, you can say like well, I'm a good person now, but guess what you still murdered a bunch of people and yeah, that's so. that's where you become problematic
2: at the end too because um the the ending we get.
1: Alright, Trick or Treat was released in 1986, but you gotta wonder if it would have fared better either earlier in the decade or later in the decade. Um, do you think this would have been more successful if it had been released maybe in that first wave of like the early 80s slashers that were a little more serious because it would have stood out as being a little different? Or do you think it would have done better in like the cartoony era of like the later Not Mario Street films like four or five?
2: I think earlier, but the thing is, when, you know, metal has been metal music has been around for a long time, this is more, the way they make Sammy Kerr's character, is he's more kind of like glam metal. Like, he's kind of like hair metal a little bit. Um, the music that they play with Fastway is not, to me, it doesn't fully match his, yeah. his look. Um, so I don't know if it would have gotten over as well in the earlier 80s, just because of the style of music. Because I feel like punk music was still kind of like... Like kind of you know, well,
1: I mean, 1980—that was the year of uh, the 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 big new wave of British heavy metal. Iron Maiden's first album, um, Motorhead, Ace of Spades, uh, Priest, British Steel, and you know so on and so forth. I mean, so I mean like that era was coming into play, but it hadn't quite hit mainstream Mm -hmm. yet. Like 82, that was when. Uh, screaming for vengeance, like went like fucking huge, and uh, I guess it's eighty, maybe eighty four, when um, Come on, feel the noise became yeah. the number one hit. So. So,
2: so, the timing makes sense for what they're wanting to do. However, if you do it in the later time, you already have that movie,
1: and it's called Shocker. Am I wrong? <laughs> if Shocker had Fastway soundtrack, but kept this kept Dude's Wrath <laughs> on, as a bonus track, that's a perfect movie. Sword and Stone is the song that plays at the end of that movie, and. That's- Fucking song rules. You're you're, you're cool. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You're cool <laughs> for knowing. <laughs> um, the character of Sammy Kerr over time has amassed a sizable cult following because of the internet, but he's far from a household name. What? Where would you place Sammy Kerr in like the pantheon of like all time slasher? He's lower tier. I mean, it is what it is.
2: Um, I'm just trying to think of somebody.
1: I can't really put him in there. I mean, we've 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 talked a lot about sl- uh, shocker. <laughs> him, him and Horace Pinker, right there. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would probably put Horace just a a hair above him because I think that was. It's just a movie that is a little more in the public consciousness than than Trick or Treat. Trick or Treat. I mean, even though it's got this cult following, it's still very much cult film. So if you go down the street, you know most people are not going to know who Horace Pinker is, but there's probably going to be more people who know him than. More people well, may all, and may also know Fastway,
2: and that's why a lot of people may know this movie is because of the band Fastway. Yeah,
1: that's true. That's true. Synergy. That's what they call synergy. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I think that uh, he has a, a nice little niche, but um, he's he's definitely below Leprechaun in terms of popularity. Yeah. And and at that point, it's like you're getting into like the weird, weird like one-off slasher characters like. You yeah, know, the, the fucking nightmare driller killer from Slumber Party Master 2. I feel like you have, like, lower tier is
2: Sammy Kerr, and then you have the kids from Mother's Day right above them. <laughs> Fair enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, not to end this portion of the podcast on a sour note, but we got to talk about the tragic death of Tony Fields and the controversy that surrounds it. So in 1982, Tony was handpicked by Freddie Mercury to appear in the Queen music video Body Language. Take this with a grain of salt, but it is believed that, that either Tony gave HIV to Freddie or vice versa. Obviously, there is no way we can know this for sure, but the time frame definitely correlates. Freddie would pass away in November of 1991, and Tony would die in February of 1995. And this is a sensitive t- uh, subject, and I debated whether or not to even include this because I, I def- obviously don't want to uh, give anybody the grounds to, you know, spout any homophobia or, yeah. or you know, like, oh, that motherfucker killed the greatest singer of all time, or, or that motherfucker killed the, the greatest <laughs> horror uh, rock star killer of all time. It, it's 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 sad no matter how you look at it, whether or not they transferred it to one another or if they were just both unfortunate enough to have contracted it. But um, if, if he had not passed away um, in that amount of time with the resurgence that we've had in popularity, do you think that he would uh, a be in, you know, working shape, you know, to, to be able to pull off of a, Thirty year after the fact sequel, or or would they, or he even want to? I mean, uh, it, like I guess it, it's possible if he's making movies like Dream a Little Dream and uh, and uh, Summer School that uh, he may be more interested in doing things like that.
2: Possibly, I mean. It, it, when you first mentioned this to me it was a while back and you said you had some weird correlation to the time frame of, of both of them getting hiv and passing away um it, it is an interesting uh tidbit like you said and and it's it's wild, but I I think he would definitely, for one, if he was still alive, he'd be on the cons. People would be getting him at every single Comic-Con or anything, you know, any horror
1: con. I mean, it, it would probably be bigger because he'd be there Advocating front, it. front and center. Yeah. And I know Mark Price will occasionally do conventions and stuff. But, but be- he's not going to be like, yeah, I was a trick or treat. <laughs> Well, wow. I I mean <laughs> family ties, <laughs> Trick or Treat, that's just true. That's true. Uh, by all accounts, Tony was a wonderful human being and he was well liked on set. It's a shame that he didn't get to live long enough to know how revered he has become and how big a deal Trick or Treat is to a lot of people. So, rest in peace. As great a villain as Sammy Kerr is, he wouldn't be nearly as great without an equal protagonist and trick-or-treat delivers with Mark Price as Eddie Weinbauer. Also in Killer Tomatoes Eat France, Combat High with George Clooney who was in Monuments Men with Bill Murray who was in Ghostbusters you just got busted again. He hosted 150 episodes of the teen show... Um, win, loser, uh, teen win, loser draw for the Disney Channel. I had no idea about that. Um, however, Mark is best known as Skippy on his 51 episode run of Family Ties with Michael J. Fox, who is in Back to the Future with Christopher Lloyd, who is in One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest with David DeVito, who is in Twins, which is directed by Ivan Ratman, who directed Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. All right, first question Skippy from Family Ties. Or boner from growing pains. <laughs> we said this off off air. It's definitely boner. <laughs> Name alone. Man, I I, I enjoyed family ties. I, I, I'm going to be wrong. Family Family Ties is sort of a a it was probably the probably the more cutting edge of the two si- sitcoms because uh it was dealing with like a weird family dyna- dynamic. You have two liberal parents who have a Staunchly conservative son, like that's a, that's an interesting Aren't dynamic. They like,
2: weren't they like hippies? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It's been yeah. a while since so I watched,
1: yeah. but I know. And and God punished them with a with a with a conservative <laughs> son. Um, <laughs> the opposite happened with my family, <laughs> but, uh, but um, family uh, or growing pains is it, weird because that that show is a little more cut and dry, and like you know, it's just a typical sitcom. Well, well, love sitcom. Don't get me wrong. But uh, it's uh, starred uh, Kurt Cameron, who is a insane person. Um, so there, there's interesting ways to look at it either way. Now, for years, and this is no dunk on Mark Price, but I could not have told you which one was Boner and which one was <laughs> Skippy. But I always thought that Skippy was Boner and Boner was Skippy. <laughs> um, but Boner is the name that I will always remember because I have a 12-year-old sense of humor. Um, But it's probably better that uh, you were known as Skippy rather than Boner. uh, Hey, Skippy! Hey, Boner! (laughs) (laughs) That should have been a spinoff show, (laughs) Skippy and Boner. Um, uh, Speaking of Growing Pains, uh, in 1986, Mark would win Best Young Actor starring in a television series for his role in Family Ties. Granted, Mark wasn't the star of Family Ties, but he was a very popular character. Now... This method of putting a sitcom star into a slasher flick would be very lucrative in the 1990s. Movies like Scream and O.J. did last summer. But this wasn't as common in the 80s. Do you think it was a smart decision to put a sitcom star into a slasher film? I think
2: if it's I I no disrespect to to Mark, um, but he's not Michael J. Fox. If you put Michael J. Fox in a slasher, which you almost could have with Teen Wolf the movie, fucking rules as well, um, it it to me would would have been a bigger success.
1: But I, I well, Michael J. Fox is in the class in 1984, and um, that movie's awesome. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. He doesn't have a big role, but he's
2: in it. I just love Teen Wolf. I just want to get a Teen Wolf mentioned in.
1: I love Teen Wolf as well. Um. <sighs> my problem and granted i was not a teenager during this time so it's one of those things where like i kind of take the movie as is because even though like yeah i was familiar with family ties and the character of Skippy to me he's ragman you know I, I i associate him with that and the problem with hiring a sitcom star is that a lot of them may be popular but they're very limited in their acting abilities and all I'm going to see is Sarah Michelle Geller playing a role rather than Sarah Michelle or can't say that hog Sarah Michelle Geller in a role rather than an actor becoming a character. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't really have that, that issue in this movie, but I think that's one of the negatives against casting well known actors for slasher movies. But the positive, obviously, being is going to put more eyes on there than, you know, you're someone who watches Family Times like, oh, Skippy's in a movie. Let's take the kids and, you know, we'll get McDonald's french fries after. I, I don't know. <laughs> like, I guess there's a possibility that this could attract a demographic that wouldn't normally go. But I just I can't imagine that in 1986 it was enough to. Sway a large enough percentage as it was in the '90s to have uh crap. What's her name? Uh, played Sidney Prescott. Nev Campbell. Nev Campbell, who was you know, Party of Five was a a massively popular show, and she was the star of it. So I guess that you're right. That is kind of the difference. Um, the the character of Eddie is somewhat relatable to metalheads. Uh, so uh our, ourselves uh but there's a big difference when i was in high school in the 90s rather than the 80s uh so there's there sort of a parallel there but it's it's different because of the time period um i i'm i I guess it what what if you were to classify what you were in high school like what what uh demoralizing stereotype would you fall into I I was
2: kind of a little bit of everything man because I listened to a lot of classic rock I was really big into like Hendrix and I was really big into like m- like older metal music I was also into like the emo music. I was into pop. I listened to kind of everything. So, uh, so sorry, I, I, I listen to everything, and I'm the, deleting you off this podcast. The, this is going to be me the, asking questions and no answers. The you know when I was in high school, I was friends. With, I was not. Super popular, but I was friends with a lot of people. I was friends with a lot of different groups. I was friends with the potheads because I smoked weed. I was, what? Friends, I was friends with the jocks because when we go to parties, I would drink with them. Uh, I got along with the with the, the emo goth kids because we all listened to the same music and we all liked a lot of the same movies. Uh, same with the metalheads. I got along with them. We watched a lot of the same movies. So uh, I was a little bit of everything. But by the time I was going through high school, I mean I graduated in 07 Times were completely different than what they would have been in the 80s and 90s, and listening to metal music wasn't really like you were a, a pariah, it was like you were just a, a music that you liked.
1: I, I think I came in really on the tail end of, of that, because I started high school in the 90s, graduated in 2 but... If you, you know, if you wore black and you know, wore a metal shirt, or really at that time, there weren't a lot of people like sporting like full-on metal. A lot of it was like oh I like biscuit and corn and that kind of <laughs> shit. But in my high school, those people were called freaks. That was literally the label that we were granted, and I kind of hated it at the time cuz I'm like, well, I'm not a fucking freak. I just like Megadeth,
2: you know? Well, I mean, I played sports too, and I was really heavily involved with basketball. And where I lived in Florida, we didn't have a whole, like, there wasn't a predominantly black community. It was mainly white. So most of my my black friends, we all played basketball, played, you know, that, we were around that scene. And I would get some looks more so then from like my basketball crowd that I hung out with, with the kind of music and movies I watched than anything. But it still wasn't to the point where like they made me feel like I was a freak. They still were like, okay, he likes that. Oh, well, whatever. It wasn't not like I was picked on for it, you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Well, I, I definitely had the feeling of being ostracized, and you know that's that's going back, you know, to middle school and stuff. And it's sort of an interesting way to look at life in the way that like metalheads are specifically. And this is probably true for for other things, but when when you were made fun of in when I say we, you know, being colloquial here, not specifically to you or I, but. When you're made fun of, when you're like elementary school, or maybe even later in life, you know it, it. A lot of times, it's for stuff that you can't help, or at least you can't help like immediately. Like, oh, maybe you're fat, or you got bad skin, or you got crooked teeth, you know. And and kids are just fucking ruthless with that kind and of I'm stuff. I'm going through that
2: now with my kids. And oh, they, really? They, not they, they. don't really get picked on, but she's worried that kids would pick on her.
1: Oh, uh, well, more was, so. Kaylin Finn is like, I don't care. I don't care what they say. Hopefully, hopefully that'll you know they they will not be bullied and. And things like that because it's a fucking terrible thing to Absolutely. happen. But for me, the cool thing about being a metalhead, it's the one it's the one element that when I sort of embraced embraced the hate kind of kind of mentality, it's the thing that I chose to separate myself rather than it being something I couldn't control. And I have lifelong friends because of it. Me and Fat Tony, like it was the thing that we fucking bonded over when I was a freshman in high school and you know he i think he was a junior at that point and i'm like hey i've heard that you can get me concert tickets this band Godsmack, is coming to the electric ballroom in knoxville here's some money please buy me a ticket and don't steal it from me now I'm thinking like, well, there's a good, good possibility this, this hulking dude with Fabio hair is going to, <laughs> is going to take my money and I'll never see it again. But no, he, he got it for me. And you know, we've been friends ever since, but it's a bonding thing where you have a commonality of something you enjoy and it just get kind of, uh, it, it's a bond that is, it's a bond that's beyond strictly friendship because it's like, like, and Fat a big Kiss fan, but if you're a member of the Kiss Army, it's like you're a part of something. And I know you're a big ghost fan. And if you see someone else wearing a ghost shirt, you're like, like you, you don't know okay. that person, but you're like, I instantly have something in common with yep. that person rather than like walking down the street and it's like, well, this person likes Mountain Dew. I also like Mountain Dew, but not enough to wear a Mountain Dew t shirt, you know? I could compare the same thing to wrestling. Yeah as absolutely. well
2: that's and that's how we became friends yeah. was through wrestling and you know Travis you know Travis is my best friend and also, fuck you, Travis. Piece of shit. <laughs> and, and it's just the same thing, but it was the same thing when you saw when you went to school or if you went, say, you know, you started high school or, or, or middle school and you saw another kid with a wrestling shirt on, especially that time period. Because for me, you know, that was, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. You were like, you like wrestling. I like wrestling, too. Let's go to shows together and shit. So it was kind of the same way. But I completely agree with, with what you're saying.
1: Let's wrestle in my mom's bedroom. <laughs> Naked. What? Naked. What? <laughs> what? what? Pile drive me! Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> um, um, Eddie is bullied quite a bit by the popular kids. So let's break let's break down his offenses. He gets uh, he has a hole poked into his chocolate milk, which causes it to spill on his shirt. The jocks play keep away with his Eddie's belongings, and they, you know, they took from his locker. They steal his towel and push him in the gym naked while girls are playing volleyball. Uh, girl takes Polaroid of him while he's naked, aka kitty porn. Lock up that deviant, <laughs> and um, all this stuff happens. Within like the first few minutes of the movie, they easily want you to know who the hills are in this movie. Yeah, they, 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 (laughs) their roles are assigned, and it is, it is one of those things where, like, if you, if you dislike this character of, of Eddie at that point in the movie, you're not going to like this movie because it is entirely hinged on you identifying with him and realizing that he, you know, he, you know, deserves revenge. That may be a little crass, but, you know, he, he'd he be more in the right to retaliate on these people because they're making his life a living hell. Now, it crosses a line, because later on in the movie, bullies put a weight in his backpack and push him into the pool, a.k.a. attempted murder. Lock him up, lock him up. So, with everything you put there, um, from the get-go, the character of Eddie, he's just made to be endearing and the audience you can you can sympathize with him and that's definitely by design director Charles Martin Smith had this to say one of the first comments I made to the producers on trick-or-treat was if the character of Eddie Weinbauer didn't work if he wasn't sympathetic if his progress through the movie as he goes from kid who's being picked on to uh, a deme- a demonic force on his side to kid who's trying to stop this demonic force if that transition, of character didn't work. It didn't matter how good the special effects were or how scary the picture was, the movie wouldn't be a success. Now, Eddie's world is caving in on him. He's being bullied. He's in love with the girl who doesn't notice him. And his idol is dead mentally and physically. He's exhausted. Eddie plays Sammy's final record. But as he sleeps, he has a vision of Sammy burning alive. This leads to him to playing the record backwards. Okay. What do you think about the backwards record as a storytelling device?
2: I like it, and that's because a lot of conspiracy theories are out that there are all these hidden messages and so many things. So it plays upon that stereotype around that time, or, the, or almost like the urban legend of that time, which I know what Zeppelin's one of the ones that's real famous for. Uh, oh
1: my sweet Satan! <laughs>
2: <laughs> and um, um, Beatles, a que- a Queen is like I
1: like smoking marijuana. <laughs>
2: is it another one bites the dust and yeah. that's yeah and then like um um turn me on dead man and paul's dead and all that yeah. shit so it and then i think a lot of the parents too are like starting to think all these songs have fucking meanings in the in the behind it and all this
1: so i mean there's a there's a lot of stuff going on during during this point and this is all going on during the satanic panic and the the pmrc stuff judas priest there's a, a fucking trial that happens because they record a cover of Spooky Tooth's song, Better By You, Better Than Me. Mm-hmm. And this guy fucking blows half his face off with a shotgun. <clears throat> he survives, and he looks like uh, Gary Oldman from Hannibal. I mean, it's fucking gross. But they take them to fucking trial. And there's a really good documentary about it. It's like a PBS documentary. I highly suggest you seek it out. But they they tried to make the claims that there was you know backmasking in the song, and it was proven that it was untrue. But there are actual records that had backmasking, and a lot of them were not you know grand designs on. It's making. usually jokes or something.
2: A lot of times, I've, from what I've seen, a lot of artists will put them in just to kind of fuck
1: with themselves. You know, yeah. it's like joke, like almost like jokes. Well, uh, off the top of my head, there's Hell Awaits by Slayer and. If if the backwards lyrics in that song are going to drive you to kill, I can only imagine what the front words are <laughs> going to do. So I think that's just dumb. Uh, Still Life by Iron Maiden, Damien by Ice Earth. And I mean, it, it, there's probably hundreds of these examples, but it's a lot of the ones that like people claim are there. They're actually not there. That. <sighs> Just because you hear something. That's, Ozzy, that's another one. Uh, get the gun, get the gun. Shoot, suicide shoot, suicide shoot, shoot. solution. Yeah, suicide yeah. solution. And there's a part in the song playing forward where it sounds like he says, get the damn gun, but evidently it's like a reverb thing. But the guy that were, there was a there was an incident the, with that, was trial and they say it, says it backwards. And like you listen to it, it's like, nah, you're just grasping at straws. If, if, if that's what you
2: want to hear. And that's what, I mean, I'm not, you know, if you have psychological issues then do whatever you can take steps to take care of that. But if you think you're hearing something, it means that you're you already have the intention of doing
1: something. You're looking for a reason. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like a Rorschach test. Um, if you look at it and you see, you know, dicks, then you probably like dicks. If you see it and you see um, a fucking black splotch, you're a normal human being, you know uh, it, it's just a it's an interesting way to look at things and art is absolutely subjective and uh, but i I don't I don't think a rational human being is gonna be driven mad by you know a song played backwards, you know It's a cool idea for a movie, but not realistic. Uh, one of the key elements in being a metalhead is your uniform, which at the time was mostly denim and leather. Eddie's fashion sense hilariously ranges from legit metalhead to an MTV caricature of a rocker. What do you think about his attire throughout the movie? Because there's one specific part in the movie every time I fucking laugh because he's wearing like a zebra print, uh, outfit and, and it is like straight out of a fucking rat video. Does he have his, does he have a battle vest?
2: He does. Yes. Um, I mean, every, like, you have one. Yeah. Scott has, our buddy Fat Foot Scott has one. Um. I mean, that that part I get. The hair is what does it for me in this movie. But uh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about with
1: the, the zebra print. It is a little. Um, that's when he's getting confident, too. Like later <laughs> on in the movie, he's like, yeah, I'm going to fucking wear this. That's going to make all those fucking uh, pusses drip with excitement. And, and it works. Yeah, he and gets it, the chip. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, that's that's shown me that, like, I'm not dressing fancy enough. That's that's the, the, the that's, hurdle. Get that some I zebra have. print yeah, now. I need to. I need to skin a zebra alive, like that's that's because ri- I need the blood for a sacrifice. The, I need I need a rock god of a foregone era to, uh, to sacrifice blood of a, of a zebra to and wear its pelt, and that's just get. I and then ironically, you meet a woman who's just rocking out the shebop. <laughs> oh <laughs> my back. god, it's Cindy Lauper. <laughs> it's all coming. It's all coming full circle. <laughs> Um, a couple of years ago, I, I would have argued that Eddie's wardrobe is really dated, um, but that's kind of come back into fashion somewhat. Uh, even th- I mean, shit, I was kind of dressing that way, but like, even I'm like, you know, this is this is just to let people know to get the fuck away from me. You know, this is this is I'm telling you who I am up front, and I don't want to have a conversation with you about you know Amway or whatever. However, Stranger Things made everyone go nuts for metal chic. Uh, this. Uh, past... Is, was it this year? It was this oh, yeah. year. Uh, and so I've kind of changed my tune after seeing this newest season with the character of Eddie Munson. However, I'm wondering, do you think that Eddie Weinbauer was the inspiration for Eddie Munson? I can believe that. I never I never thought of that. When I first watched the show, there was a, a, a specific moment where he does something with his hair, and I'm like, holy fuck, that's Ragman. So I don't know if it was intentional or if they're just kind of drawing from the middle of the idea of what a metalhead looked like at that time. But these guys have shown that they're they're very in tune with pop culture and, you know, they're, they're trying to be as authentic to things. So maybe it's sort of like a a little homage, homage blink and you miss it kind of thing. But I, I think and he's named Eddie. He is named Eddie. Um Eddie Munson is uh not as not as cool as Eddie Weinbauer. It was a phenomenon. Season four was great. Yeah, very good, very good. Very excited to see where they go from here. And uh I as someone who did not really care for season two and season three, that's actually saying something because I am a uh, a old bastard who doesn't enjoy a lot of things, so I really like season four. Um one thing we haven't mentioned uh in, in great detail is Eddie's nickname being Ragman. Uh, do you know what ragman means? I do not. All right, ragman is a very old term uh, referring to a person who literally clicks and deals in rags or like old clothing. But over the years, it's sort of been recontextualized to describe poor people, like who are you know rags to or, riches yeah, kind of deal. well somebody somebody <laughs> who is outside of the norm of society. So it's either somebody is literally on the side of the road, you know, holding a sign, we'll work for food or somebody that uh, more colloquial colloquially is somebody that just doesn't fit into the, the mold that people want you to fit in. So I think that's what they're going for. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm just trying to grasp at straws and make sense of it. That being said, uh, they must have liked it so much because in at one point, the movie was actually called Ragman, and it's actually still called Ragman in Germany. So, good idea, bad idea to change the title to Trick or Treat.
2: That's Trick or Treat. I mean, um, rag, Ragman's a little bit lo-
1: more forgettable of a title than Trick or Treat. It definitely doesn't stand out. Like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know what you're getting with that title. Ragman, that could be... That could be a drama. It could be uh, comedy, a music, a musical, a comedy. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that when is. You hear "Trick or Treat," you think horror movie. Yeah. Um, well, while we're on the subject, "Trick or Treat," um, you know, it definitely elicits a Halloween mood. Um, is this? Movie a a quintessential Halloween viewing destination in the same way that Trick or Treat is, or or Halloween, or is it a movie that like it's good, but it's you know it's not quite on that level. Uh, It's not quite on that
2: level for me. It is a it is a good little eighties, nugget, but like I would much prefer to watch Trick or Treat
1: compared to this one. Uh, As much as I would love to say that Trick or Treat is a better movie, I simply can't. We love Trick or Treat, and maybe someday in the future we'll get that on the podcast. All the same, I really like the character of Eddie, and we could definitely go deeper into what makes him tick, but I think this would be a great opportunity to hear from, well, direct from the horse's mouth. So without further ado, Rant Army, it is my great pleasure to introduce the ragman himself, Mark Price. Take it away, Mark.
0: And who am I? I'm Mark Skippy Price, Ragman from the movie Trick or Treat. People, A lot of people know me from Family Ties, but some of my hardcore fans, they know. Uh, what a great experience. Uh, you know, I'm old now. I was 17 years old. I was skinny. I was the lead in a movie. How could I not look back with fond memories of that time in my life? It was pretty amazing. And I love the cast. I miss Tony Fields, played Sammy Kerr. He used to freak me out. He genuinely would scare me. I think, to try to keep me on edge for the movie. But what a good time. And Charlie Martin Smith, our director, he's gone on to be, you know, he's an actor himself, right? He comes, he was towed in American Graffiti and he's in The Untouchables and he starred in all kinds of great movies. But now he's a big director. And if you ever see a movie like Dolphin Tale or A Dog's Way Home or anything with an animal, a dog or an air bud, if there's a dog playing basketball or a dolphin... Saving Lives, he's the guy directing it. And so he found that niche. Our cinematographer did some big movies. I think he was Academy Award nominated. And can I tell you, fast way? oh, man, that soundtrack, that was the key to the success of the movie, really. And we knew it when we heard the soundtrack or the rough cut or whatever we heard while we were still on the set. It was like, oh, man, this is good. And uh, I do believe that is why people still enjoy the movie. Now it's that that amazing soundtrack ozzy and gene simmons i remember i met gene simmons i was 17 you know i was like "Uh, could you show me the thing you do with the tongue could you show me that (laughs) he said i only do that for girls ozzy and sharon you know everyone knows about ozzy and sharon these days through the reality show and all that back then there was no reality show he was the demon of darkness and when i met the real ozzy i was uh i was impressed what a great guy Oh, man, what a great heart. I really love them, Sharon and Ozzy. I'm a fan, of course, of his music, but I'm also a fan of his personally. And so there you go. Love your guts. No false
1: metal. Thank you so much, Mark, for that audio. We're forever in your debt. And if you ever tussle with Sammy Kerr again, feel free to call in for reinforcements from the Ramp Army. And before we move on to our additional cast, there are a few more things that I couldn't move on from Mark, but without mentioning. Mark's father, Al Bernie, was a successful stand-up comedian who was featured on The Ed Sullivan Show, The Jackie Gleason Show, The Merv Griffin Show, and The Mike Douglas Show. If you were a featured comic back then and there was... Your name plus show, he probably appeared on it. In later years, Mark has followed in his father's footsteps and has become a stand-up comedian himself, going on to open for Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, and has, has toured with Carrot Top and Weird Al Yankovic. So all in all, I think Mark has done pretty well for himself. So, Ragman, we salute you. Now, our hero is joined by a mostly likable, if not underutilized cast that we'll briefly discuss. First up, we have Lisa Orgelini as Leslie Graham. I probably mispronounced that. She was in Born to Ride with John Stamos, who this very same year would also appear in the James Bond ripoff film No Time to Die with Gene Simmons. So there's a nice little turnaround uh, small role in 1992, Shining Through, and worked with a young Kate Winslet in a film called Hideously Kinky. that's nice a uh, Great name. Um, the problem is that it's a young Kate Winslet, so that makes me really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, the uh, The character of Leslie is the love interest of Eddie. Does this romance work in the movie? It doesn't work so well in the movie. Personally, I think it falls completely flat. Not because there's a lack of chemistry, or you know, between her and Mark, but personally, I think there there isn't like this flirtation of like the wrong side. of fl- It's not
2: flushed out very well.
1: And she basically just pities him because the bullies strip him naked, and she, and she sees the Polaroid, and she's the one that gives him back. She saw his dick it's, and was I'm, like, "I it's literally <laughs> what I have here: it is <laughs> foot long donger." I literally have in my fucking. Yeah, watch out for those quiet ones, fucking monster cocks. So I think that I think that's just. Thirst trap. <laughs> it's it's the it's the only thing that makes any sense. This type of thing could work if it were fleshed out. You have to give her like a sympathetic edge and be like, you know, somebody say like, ooh, that guy. I don't know about him. And then her uh, he's say like, kind of hot. Like her she say, yeah say something like, I don't know. You know, he's weird, but he's kind of cute. You know, give give them a little more leeway than like, hey, you want to show up to this pool party with all my friends? that are gonna beat your ass and try and murder you. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, it's what a lot of dumb. Have you stories. seen my dick? <laughs> <laughs> so when she gives Eddie the Polaroid, she does invite him to this pool party, and the bullies try to you know drown him. But she does save his life, probably because she wanted that enormous meat stick of his to penetrate her you know soon or you know you know blow out her twat or whatever whatever. <laughs> Joking aside, her character becomes more important in the third act once Sammy becomes corporeal, but. You could almost cut her out of the movie and it would not would change notice. a lot. Yeah. And I think that that kind of sucks. We have Glenn Morgan as Eddie's best friend, Roger. This is another character you could cut out of the movie and it would change very little. He does play a little bit more of a pivotal role in getting the dubbed cassette of the backwards masked album from point A to point B because uh, yet again, because Sammy's in a radio, he decides, well, can't get Eddie to help me anymore. I'm gonna get his do derpy friend Roger. He's so. just a plot point, literally. And what what incentive does I mean, yeah, if, if a guy jumped out of your stereo <laughs> and was like, hey motherfucker, I need you to take this tape to the to the fucking thing. He's made himself corporeal. What is stopping Sammy from walking his ass over there and doing it himself? You don't you don't understand how being a rock God is. I so. guess I guess not. Um It's beneath him. <laughs> This is his only acting stint, that being Glenn Morgan, but he has gone to have a prolific uh, career as a writer and producer for the X-Files. He also worked on a couple of Final Destination films, and he directed the 2006 movie Black Christmas, the remake. Really? So that that's an interesting career trajectory for him. He, kind of like Charles Martin Smith, he ditched acting and has gone on to have more success in the directing and producing realm. Uh he gets really short changed uh so i i think like uh, other than that one pivotal moment you could pretty much cut him from the movie and he also dies did not he have an awesome then he get like electrocuted? we'll we'll cover that and oh, just in just a few that's my bad um but you needed more more of him being being there in times when you know like hey like hey you're you're acting weird like there's no moment like that like oh you're not acting like yourself Eddie, or you know, there. You need that if you're going to have that kind of character, you need him to be kind of representative of the audience and ask questions that a normal person who is friends with a character like that would ask. Like, hey, where were you at today? Oh, you were trying to murder uh, a fucking dude on a uh, the fucking uh, I don't even know what you call it that piece of machinery where the guys and the art and art ca- uh, or the workshop class. Yeah, like yeah. you know why? Why are they not having these conversations? And yet again, if you're going to have the girl character in there, have her ask these questions. I, I think that there's a missed opportunity, and that's probably because the movie was rushed and you didn't get to flesh out those those secondary characters, which would have made this a more enjoyable experience overall. We have Elaine Joyce as Eddie's mom, Angie Weinbauer. Her other role of note is the of the swinger who goes to motel hell looking for an orgy, but gets bur- buried up to her neck and force-fed in a field by Farmer Vincent and his murderous sister, Ida. Covered motel hell at the very beginning of this year, um, so I already had that a tidbit of information in my back pocket. Um, she's, she's a very attractive lady. And uh, we've uh, already confirmed uh, that uh, she was really into uh, Shebop around <laughs> this time. Uh, not to say like a broken record, but Eddie's mom is another character that needed to do more in the movie. Um, so, what do you? How do you think she could have been better utilized in the in the film?
2: She could have just been there, <laughs> like they barely use her because I believe she's in the scene when he she, she putting laundry on his bed. Yeah, and then like, and then he, like
1: he gets he, she grounds him because he like destroys his. Uh, is stereo, yeah. but like it, it's his stereo yes but at the same time like it's just one of those things like hey well you're you can't go to the, the show you can stay home and I'm not gonna you know I don't know That just doesn't feel like she's not she doesn't do enough and there's not there's moments of concern but it's so separated you know that was, just, an, that was just that uh, was just parenting in the 80s man well, I guess so, and I, I I grew up in the '80s, and I can believe it. My, my my mom my mom worked late hours, and I got into all sorts of you know horrible horrible things that if she knew about, she'd probably cry herself to sleep. But the difference is, my mother would have been upset by those things and not just shrugged it off. When if I destroyed, if I had that record set up, you know, stereo system, and I had destroyed that, I a would have never gotten another stereo, and b I would have been grounded to the point where, like, I would not have been left out of my room. Like, I, I would have not seen daylight, you know, other than school or church or, or whatever. So, yeah, they, they, they definitely shortchange her as well. Lastly, we have Angie's love interest, Graham Smith as Stan, aka the dorky guy dressed as Rambo, despite uh, his small role in Trick or Treat. His legacy in horror goes a little deeper with roles in Stephen King's Silver Bullet and Golden Years. Silver Bullet rules. Fucking love it. Corey life. Yeah, I. And, and Gary Busey. <laughs> I will literally rip out your cream system. <laughs> I have a head. I have a head injury, so I can say whatever I want. I got arrested pretty recently for taking my clothes off and grabbing people. I'm Gary Busey. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, and then we have a couple of interesting cameos, one of which we've kind of discussed, but we'll go a little deeper. And then the other one uh, is only barely mentioned. That's Ozzy Osbourne as Reverend Aaron Gilstrom. First question, how strange is it to see Ozzy with short hair? It's it's very weird, and, and hearing him be coherent is also... Um one of the, A little wild. One of the things I actually looked into was, like, because Ozzy Ozzie has trouble talking, let alone acting. Uh, I was just kind of curious, like, how many takes I had to do to get, like, these these lines of dialogue out. But I was unable to to find out. But evidently, there is, like, footage that's never been released. Like, just, like, B-roll footage. They like, just let the camera roll. So there's this whole scene of him doing this television thing is, like, 40 minutes so I guess they, I don't know if there was a script specifically or if they just kind of gave him like talking points, points and yeah. like here, just kind of put it how you would put it. Because if you, I guess if you're not a trained actor, that might be a better I, way to make it sound more organic. I like to think it was kind of like a Mr. Ed thing. They just kind of put peanut butter <laughs> on his gums. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor, poor Ozzy. He has caveman DNA. Jara, <laughs> not- <laughs> Um... Does casting Ozzy against Type, does that, is that, is that a positive thing for the movie?
2: When I first saw it, I was like, it threw me off. I was like, oh, I get what they're doing. It's fucking funny. Like, I got
1: it. Um, Now, obviously, Ozzy's not an actor, so we won't even entertain the idea of like him being cast as the the main villain. Although, in terms of box office, that probably would have been the best shot they had to have a really, really big movie. They would have to dub over every fucking line. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's just let's break it down. Who would who would you get to du- to dub Ozzy? Oh, man, I don't even fucking know. I don't. For- like Frank Welker, and it's Ozzy, but it's fucking Megatron's voice coming out. <laughs> I have a boner right now that is tipping the fucking table over. I was I was thinking uh, Peter Weller or uh, <laughs> Peter Weller. <laughs> um- you mean you mean Frank? What now, uh, Peter Weller uh, as in like RoboCop? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> why? Because <laughs> it fucking make me laugh. Like Dolph Lundgren, it'd also make me laugh. Like, oh. oh, man, <laughs> Dolph Lundgren, an- another person who could barely speak. <laughs> that's why it'd be funny. <laughs> 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 it'd be like a, it'd be like an Argento movie. It's fine. Oh well, that's true. I mean, I mean <laughs> or a Fulci movie, more so a Fulci. Yeah, all those crazy Italian movies with the bad dubbing. Um, and the and the uh, wild special effects. All uh, that shit. Good stuff. Um, Ozzy's screen time is brief, but it's memorable. I think, uh, having him in the movie was a, was a positive. Uh, Gene Simmons we have as Nuke. Gene was originally offered the role of Sammy Kerr, which we covered, but he agreed to do a cameo as this radio DJ Nuke. Simmons later said in an interview that he chose to play, uh, Nuke as a tribute to his childhood hero, Wolfman Jack. And after hearing his, what you would quote unquote assert as acting, I, I definitely can hear the Wolfman Jack comparisons, and um, that's in the cadence of his voice, but um, I don't think that Gene was ever going to have a great career as an actor, but he's definitely charismatic enough to play small roles like this. What do you think about Nuke in the movie? It's perfect. It's not too much. Uh,
2: I I would have preferred to see more Ozzy than Nuke, but for what he does, definitely not a lead role. I, I, I support it.
1: All right. One final thing before we we move on. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, and it was the genesis for me seeing it and and for you as well. And that's that DVD cover with, you know, Ozzy and Gene, not even representative of how they are in the film. What do you think about this DVD cover um, being... In terms of its deceptiveness of what the movie is. Because, I mean, it would lead you to believe that, like, they're the stars of this movie. Which is why I bought it. This is the reason one of the reasons I watched it.
2: So, it worked. It, it exactly worked. However, the artwork that you have on your Blu-ray uh, copy is kind of more what it looks like with Sammy Kerr. I think that looks cooler to me. And it's more enticing for me to want to know what that that is. Oh, well, the,
1: just in terms of... That, that DB is a is like fucking nightmare... Uh, the back, the back part the <laughs> ha- has a picture. It's like, yeah, it's like production behind the scenes of the monster, which we'll we'll talk about uh, a little uh, later on when we get to our victims, because it comes into play. But it's like, how uh, did how yeah. how do you and just to fucking take a screenshot from the actual movie and put it on the back rather than like a, you know, a. Print photo. I now, don't know. Now
2: I, I wonder, with because you know, I don't even think they showed Sammy Kerr on the front, do they? I don't. I don't have that copy I'm, anymore. I'm but I don't, I don't believe. I'm so. I'm wondering if the re, if they had would have had to pay a likeness right to um, his estate uh, if that was the case.
1: You know, I, my my legal uh, understanding of these things is that like you know once you sign a contract they they own the likeness. Per the movie, but you know sometimes things move from one studio to another, and those things get muddled. So it's possible; it's very possible. We'll actually talk about. Oh yeah, it's a fun, you Eddie brought it up on his phone. It's terrible. It is not good. Yeah, it's it's very very bad. Um, but uh, we'll actually talk about why Trick or Treat has never been released again from that shitty DVD uh, in just a little bit. But I think. This would be a perfect opportunity for us to highlight one of the more undersung aspects of the movie. And that's Gene Simmons' acting prowess with another Rance recreation. Oh, my God. Take your copy here, Eddie. Uh, Eddie's going to be reading the uh, character of Eddie. he's going to be doing the stage directions. And I will be reading for Nuke. <clears throat> so when you're ready, Eddie... <clears throat> Summary in the stage
2: directions as well. Yes. Nuke, the radio DJ, waves Eddie into the recording
1: booth. Eddie, I can't believe it! Yeah, well, live fast, die young, I guess. He did leave us with some great songs. He spoke to
2: us. He still does. Dead or alive, it doesn't matter. Hey, 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 Eddie!
1: Eddie, he wasn't a god. This rock warrior, Bulls. Nobody understands him the way that I do. Eddie, you didn't know him. He was angry. He always angry. <laughs> he was always angry in high school. No, that wasn't him. He stood up for what
2: he believed in, and they nailed him for it. He wanted to play the high school right, but no, no, no. They stopped him. They banned him. They tried to fuck him over everywhere he went.
1: I know what it's like. Eddie, he did this to himself. Don't you get it? He started to believe in his own hype. He did it to himself. Record
2: player starts to skip. Nuke pounds his fist to the desk. Damn equipment. Look at this place. Can you believe it? Nothing ever works. Nuke's attention is now directed towards the west wall of the studio where a a second turntable sits. He raises a vinyl record and presents it to Eddie.
1: I got something for you. You know what this is? It's the last record of the Kerr legacy. They tried to ban him. They couldn't stop him. Whoop! He's in here. Are you going to play it? Right, let's do that again. Hold on. I want you to read the stage right here. They couldn't stop him. Whooping noise. Whoop! He's in here. Are you going to play it? Midnight. Halloween. That, that was
2: Sammy's idea. Eddie surveys the vinyl with childlike wonder. Why is it so heavy?
1: <laughs> it's it's an acetate. It's a studio demo, Eddie. What you got in your hands right there is the only copy in the world. Nuke ges- gesticulates,
2: gesticulate. gesticulates. Oh, excuse me, I never actually had to read that word. Nuke gesticulates for Eddie to hand over, uh, hand over the record. All right, come on, let me have it. Nuke carefully places the acetate in the cardboard sleeve. Here. No way! No fucking way, man! You
1: said you got the plate on Halloween? I will, but I got it on tape over there. This is unfucking real. I think he would have wanted you to have this. Thank you. Try the veal. <laughs> Tip your waitress. <laughs> Great acting like that aside, I think uh, one of the big reasons anyone who watches a slasher film does so is for the carnage. So let's check out Trick or Treat's many victims. And not to cock tease everybody, but technically, before we can talk about the victims, we have to cover a couple of the incidents of note that happen before the actual blood starts to flow. So this is number 0 1. Eddie gets a cryptic message from Sammy Kerr, Sammy Kerr's record that says six, six, crush metal machine, six, six, crush, which he interprets as the shop class at his high school. He enters the classroom, sits at a desk, eats his lunch, and awaits his bully. Angrily, Tim exclaims that... Be- Excuse me, but because of Eddie's setup and subsequent misuse of the fire extinguisher on the school uh, faculty, that he spent uh, the morning in uh, janitorial detail. That's something that happens a little earlier in the film, where basically he he lures him around and he gets to uh, he thinks he's gone. It's like a montage. Yeah, it's a montage, <laughs> but he thinks that like he's gone into a uh, a, a area of the school. But turns out he went to a different place, and the bully kicks the door in and fires an extinguisher, and he gets to do janitorial duty all day. And he's furious about it. So furiously, he flips over Eddie's desk and quips Did the head banger bang his head? Throws, Tim throws Eddie into the wall and proceeds to throw wrenches at Eddie when, through paranormal means, the lathe turns on, which sucks his tie into the machine and he pins him as the large metal spindle inches towards his prone face. Thankfully, Eddie turns off the power in time, but there definitely was a temptation to allow Tim to die. What do you give this incident out of 10? Oh, I'll give it an 8. I loved it. I gave it a 7, 7 out of 10. Even though it's not a kill, narratively, the scene is necessary because it shows Eddie's desire for revenge slowly taking him over. Um, the reason I didn't give this an 8 or higher is that I feel like the movie needed more of this, more of the stringing along and slowly pushing him towards the edge. That way, when he rejects it, you know, it has more of a punch. Uh, number 0-2. Eddie dubs the Sammy Kerr record to tape and leaves it... Uh, Taped to Tim's locker with a note, a peaceful offering. Later that evening, Jeannie s- and Tim are making out in the backseat of his car, but Tim's baby bladder acts up, so he has to go take a leak. While he's gone, Jeannie decides to listen to the tape that Eddie made for Tim, which causes supernatural fucking to happen. The vents of the headphone light up and ghostly mist gropes her, knockers, and tickles her puss. I'm making myself laugh from the shit I wrote. Keep stop stop keep touching reading. yourself! Keep, keep reading. Do it, do it slower. <laughs> However, when she opens her eyes, a giant goblin is hovering and licks her real good. Oh, she fuck! She screams Ugh. out in pain, but when her body is discovered by Tim. She is dead, naked, and melted ears. She's actually not dead. Um, she goes to the hospital. She goes to the hospital, which, I mean, she's got, like, melted ears, which I don't know if that uh, if that makes me hotter for her or, or less. <laughs> Did it affect her titties at all? No, no. They, <laughs> no, they we're still, fine. They're still pristine. <laughs> what do you give this? Oh, man.
2: Uh, a fucking uh, 69 out of 10. <laughs> fair. That's fair.
1: Considering this isn't a kill, it's actually... Kind of lame, but man, the fucking titties and every and the ghost fondling and and the the fucking spiritual fucking like that like this ends up being. What On paper, could be fucking awful, but it but it, it's fucking fantastic. It looks
2: great the way they shot
1: it. Yeah, I'll go give them that. It looks a, good. It's a. I gave it a seven out of ten. I would jerk off to this. I My jerk off level seventy. <laughs> <laughs> that's one more than sixty nine. In case you're in case you're wondering, that's where that's where your uh, each mouth is on a different genital. But there's also a finger in a hole. <laughs> he gets only it. one. Only one. Because if there's not. Two, if 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 each of you have a finger in a in a representative hole, then like that becomes a seventy one, and that's illegal in most states, including Alabama and Tennessee. A um, little bit of trivia: Jeannie is played by Elise Richards, who looks very similar to a young Laurie Longland. She a, does, a.k.a. Um, Becky. Becky. Yeah. Uh, the monster is actually a tattoo on Sammy Kerr's collarbone, and it was named Skeezix by Kevin Yeager. Uh, Kevin Yeager also worked on Not Street Part 2. So there's, uh, there's another connection. Charles Martin Smith had this to say about Skeezix. When we were designing him, I was telling Kevin how quickly we were going to see him. When I told Kevin that he didn't have to build anything that great because it was only going to be a two or three, you know, second quick shot, he said, well, you know, we went there and got carried away, and he made this thing that does all this stuff. And I said, "Fine, we'll make it a lot longer cuts," but I wish we had written one more scene with him because maybe he could be the star of the sequel. Um, uh, speaking of Kevin Yeager, he's actually uh, has a cameo in the movie. He plays one of Sammy Kerr's guitar players on when they. I was going to say, it's probably at the at the actual gym." What do you What do you think about this monster? And do you agree with him it should have been I'll be honest um, with you, I don't remember the monster, I just remember her fucking tits,
2: something to be honest with
1: you. <laughs> um it, it's probably a lot more elaborate, uh, of a you know, it's a rod puppeted kind of thing and uh he it's it's pretty fucking cool that it's in the movie, but if you're gonna have something like that, I really think you need to get more mileage out of it. Because this isn't like a super heavy special effects movie. A lot of, I mean, there's a lot of like rotoscope animation from the electricity that Sammy Kerr shoots out of his fingertips later on in the movie. But there really isn't a lot of special effects uh, but this is this is a big one and I feel like they could have got some more mileage out of it so I I agree with it's hard to notice uh, special effects when my pants are around my ankles oh my god there's so much goo oh my god there's so much ectoplasm (laughs) smells smells like fucking salt in here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, number one on the actual kill list. Sammy has emerged from Eddie's speakers as Reverend Gilstrom is on TV condemning lewd rock music. Sammy decides to pull a Horace Pinker and scratches the TV, which kills, Rever- kills Kills the Reverend. We find out later that Gilstrom died from a brain hemorrhage. Sammy threatens Eddie to be loyal and zaps him back into the stereo. Eddie smashes the stereo, which leads to the funniest, um, funniest line. It'll probably be, uh, probably it's the funniest, but probably most unintended uh, line of dialogue where his mother asks his wife, Why "Smash it," and he replies simply, "Because I wanted a new one." Makes me laugh every fucking time, <laughs> just because. She's she's not a great mother. (laughs) No, she's not a great mother. Uh, The line itself isn't funny, but there's a hard cut to the next scene, which is a phone conversation between Eddie and Roger, where you find out that he's grounded through Halloween. This cut makes it. This goes to show how important editing is because editing. There's different beats for different types of film, and this is a comedic smash cut. And I don't think they meant it to be as funny as it is, or funny at all. But I, I laugh every fucking time. Uh, this does kind of become somewhat of a, a downturn in the movie for me. Um, but what do you what do you think about this kill specifically? Uh, Ozzy getting scratched through a TV and having a brain hemorrhage. I give it a horse pinker out of ten.
2: I don't know how much that is.
1: <laughs> uh, I'll,
2: man, I'll give it a, I'll give it a five.
1: I gave it a three. On paper, this <clears throat> may have been compelling, but in practice, I think it's kind of lame. Alright, number two. After being grounded by his mother for smashing his stereo, Eddie pleads with Roger to break into Tim's car and retrieve, retrieve the cassette tape so he can. it won't cause any more destruction. Roger is successful, but despite Eddie's insistence on destroying the tape, curiosity gets the best of him and he makes the fatal error of listening. His speakers blow. Smoke fills his living room. Sammy appears and commands Roger to play the tape tonight at the dance. However, the television distracts Sammy, who reaches inside and pulls out the PTA leader who got a concerned uh, got the concert canceled. This electrical transition from television to Roger's living room causes her body to turn into a hulk, a husk of ash, and Sammy slams her to the ground. What do you give this kill? Oh, dude, that's fucking awesome. Nine out of 10. I gave it an eight. I shouldn't rank this, this (laughs) high, but the aftermath of Roger vacuuming the dead (laughs) remains of this woman is that's, that's something out of a fucking parody. Um, And I, I, like, if you're going to go this route, I wish they'd gone farther with it. Like if you can again, if you can reach through fucking TVs and kill people, why do you need somebody to, to hand deliver your tape from point A to point B? He's a rock god. I, I guess so. A little bit of trivia. Sylvia Cavill is played by Alice Nunn. That's the woman that uh, gets turned into Ash. The, the woman who's spearheading this campaign against you know rock music and stuff and got the concert effectively canceled. You'd probably best remember her as Large Marge from Pee-Wee's Big Adventure. That's her big claim to fame. All right, number three. Leslie calls Eddie to inquire if he would be coming to the Halloween dance, which allows him to hear that Roger hasn't destroyed the tape. The band, the kickers, uh, take the stage, but Sammy emerges from the amplifier and explodes the guitarist. What do you give this kill? Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. I give it a five. It's just okay. I gave it a four. Um my description is more graphic than the actual kill. Uh, it's completely forgettable. However, this does lead to Sammy taking the stage to play trick or treat. And as, as Eddie is miming the, the leg slab, this is a, an iconic moment of the movie. Uh, it's one of those things. Why does this stick with you? But I, I fucking love it. It's just the stiffness of his, you know, his fist hitting the side of his leg. And his face and the fucking wind's blowing us. You see his fucking burnt face. <laughs> It's fucking great. Getting a heart so on sexy. Trick or treat. Great fucking song. We're going to talk about the music here shortly, too. Uh, kills number four, five, six, seven, eight, <laughs> nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and thirteen. Several unnamed faculty members and students dressed as a variety of things, including someone dressed as Humpty Dumpty get blown the fuck up by bolts of electricity that shoot from Sammy's guitar. What do you give this? I give it a six. I give it an Eight. I was ready to rank this super low until Humpty Dumpty exploded.
2: Had <laughs> yeah, great fall. And,
1: and the, it changed the series of events from being completely forgettable, for to, for better or for worse, hilariously memorable. Humpty Dumpty was not able to be put back together again. He <laughs> did. All right, number 14. Tim gets... A redemptive arc for about three seconds. He tries (laughs) to warn Leslie uh, about what happened to Jeannie, but then he gets super rapey, and he even punches Leslie for denying him the puss. It was the 80s. (laughs) She she manages to escape Tim, but he's going to pay for his sins when Sammy sticks his finger into an electrical outlet while he's choking Tim. This is quote-unquote, shocking. (laughs) Tim, 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 he explodes off camera. What do you give this kill? (laughs) The kill I give a three. The uh, the puns I give an eight. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, Four out of ten. The one person who absolutely deserves to die on on camera. Yeah, on screen, and he doesn't fucking get it. This is is unforgivable. I don't know. I, I know that like they want to reinforce that he's the villain. So you want to see this guy get killed, but then why do you give him a redemptive moment only for him to be like, you know what, fuck it, I want to have sex with you. (laughs) We need to get out of of here because this this guy that you're... the, The only reason he's there is
2: to finally to kill him off, but to give you that plot point that she was not killed. She's in the hospital.
1: That's the only thing you ever hear about that's her. That's true. That she's in the hospital, and yeah, you would assume that she's dead. I mean, they should have just. Killed, I mean, the, the sex, the sex with the demon was so fucking good. She's that pregnant. Was, and that's how we actually get the sequel. Oh <laughs> my god! Oh my god! And she's deaf, and because the fucking things, so she's non-susceptible to the fucking the fucking music, and she gets her redemptive moment at the very end. She she does sign language. <laughs> she pulls the plug she she plays okay this is how they defeat him this is how they fucking defeat him they have to she has to sign language the demonic backwards mass songs forward <laughs> 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 it's, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm fucking terrible I apologize I'm not making fun of people who are deaf that's fucking terrible <laughs> fucking terrible. I apologize. You got my $15. Let's go see it. (laughs) Just go ahead and fucking cancel me. Fuck Tubi now. (laughs) Oh, Oh, Jesus Christ. I know. Oh, man. Okay, number 15. The police officer who is trying to track down Eddie spots Sammy and threatens to use his stun gun. When he shoots Sammy, Sammy grabs the barbed wires and uses it to sand the electricity back to the cop, causing him to explode where the only thing left of him was his boots. What do you give this kill?
2: I give it a three because it, it takes a, too much of a comedic
1: tone there. It could have been so much better. I, I'm going to disagree with you. Um, <laughs> but at this point, like, I'm like okay, if you're going to go this goofy route, um, I ranked it a little higher because the visual of the empty smoking boots, I, I thought that was <laughs> a clever, cheap way to, to at least visually show what had happened without having to actually film it. So I gave it a six. Number 16, when Leslie and Eddie arrive at the Rock radio station, they discover that the security guard has been charred to death off-screen. I gave it a 2 out of 10. This is needless and forgettable. One. Number 17, Eddie attempts to draw Sammy away from the Rock radio station by fleeing in the cop car. He <laughs> verbally taunts Sammy until he manifests physically in the back seat. Eddie spectacularly drives the cop car off a bridge and into the river, which neutralizes Sammy's power. Meanwhile, Leslie is at the radio station attempting to destroy the tape, and with him uh, and incapacitated—I uh, oh, can't talk—with him incapacitated, she is successful, and Sammy is finally dead, or at least is dead as a slasher movie character who can fly through electrical waves can be dead. Um, when do you give this kill?
2: It's very, to me, it's just very, uh, I'd give it a five.
1: I gave it a seven, and this is why. I'm sure they left the ending somewhat vague, because they, if the movie's successful enough, they're going to milk this, you know, a little Franchise. Longer, franchise it, have a <clears> sequel. <throat> but we ultimately, you know, believe that Sammy is DOA. However, I, I can't help but give the, the setup to this kill credit, because... How often in slasher movies do you get to see a car chase? That's true. that's that's actually one of the things about this movie that I I think saves the third act because you never see car chases in slasher movies because they're expensive, they're dangerous and this it's genuinely tense with the, the stuff that happens because like Eddie's in the car and there's moments where he's in control moments where he's not in control of the, you know, what's going on. There's actually a part where the car is driving without him around <laughs> backwards throughout the, and that's, that's all good stuff. So I, I, I have to give them credit. And I think this just adds back again to Charles Martin Smith, uh, doing something with the story that probably, Someone who a more established director probably would be like, "No, we're not doing that because I know all the things that could go wrong, and you got to you got to pay a stunt man and you know a stunt driver, and this is going to be you know union costs and all this extra stuff that would have added to the budget and the the possibility of pushing production time back." So I, I think the him the death is probably like a three, yeah. But the circumstances, I, I give it a seven. <clears throat> Alright, over the years, Trick or Treat has found its little niche in horror history in the community of horror fans, but almost from the get-go, it had a leg up in another area of entertainment, that being the excellent soundtrack. So let's just talk about it. Trick or Treat is the fourth album by the hard rock band Fastway and featured the members Dave King on vocals. Do you know anything about Dave King? I remember we I broke down like there was kind of like a it's almost like a mini supergroup kind of uh, but more more in his regard probably more more so after the fact because Dave would go away from Fastway after this album which kind of sucks they weren't able to capitalize you know whatever success they've had you know subsequently from it but uh, he would go on to greater success as the vocalist for Flogging Molly. Wow. Yeah, so he he's not doing too bad. They're they're very popular touring act, so kudos to him. We also have on guitar Fast Eddie Clark, who will forever live in the house of Valhalla as being one of the three founding members of the original Motorhead. Motorhead. He left Motorhead in 1982 <clears throat> and founded Fastway a short time after. Uh, he's no longer with us. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. In fact, all three original members of Motorhead of all... You know, descended this earth into you know rock infamy, but uh, Eddie Eddie Clark, very very talented guy, and uh, a lot of the things I can say positively about this album, it's going to be hinging on the vocals and the guitar work and, and the rest of the band. I mean, I'm, it's not taking anything away from them, but they were you know they were not the the driving force in terms of the songwriting and the things that made the band great. But we'll break them down all the same. The Second guitar is a guy by the name of Shane Carroll. Bass guitar we have Paul Reed. On drums, we have Alan Connor, and then we have some guest features on the album. We have uh, uh, additional bass on track 8 from Mick Feet. Charlie McCracken as a bass, uh, additional bass on track 9. And Jerry Shirley does drums on tracks 8 and 9. Now, Jerry is best known as the drummer of Humble Pie, so he's no slouch. <clears throat> so it kind of makes me wonder uh, what it, the album would have been if he'd played drums on the whole thing. But I digress. It was released sometime in November of 1986, or right around, uh, right after the movie came out, uh, almost a month, give or take. Uh, what do you What do you think uh, critical reception for this album has
2: been? Uh, I know there was a lot of hate behind the album. A lot of people said it was not their best album,
1: which is kind of crazy because I think it's pretty damn for, good. Album. Their Fastway's first album is fucking great, but Gun to My Head. This is the one that I want to listen to. And yeah, some of that is just nostalgia for the movie it's associated with. But I mean, the fucking songs, which we're going to break down in just a moment, they're they're all fucking memorable, you know, to some to some degree. Uh, but uh, All Music, out of five, what do you think All Music has it rated as? Probably a two and a half. 1.5 wow. out of five. Uh, Collector's Guide to Heavy Metal, out of 10, what do you think they have it ranked at? Four and a half. Four out of 10. Rate Your Music. Out of five. I'd say two. 3.4 out of five. Not really? Too bad. Not too bad. Amazon, what do you think they have it ranked at? I'd out of five. I
2: bet it's to be higher. I'd say probably a three and a half. 4.7. Wow.
1: Yeah. So that's people probably buying physical copies and being like, hey, this is a great fucking album. Fuck you. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Target has it a five out of five. So I didn't know that was available at Target, but there you go. The people who shop Target fucking love it, and I did not get my copy at Target. Where did you get your copy at?
2: A local radio or record store in Knoxville called Basement Records. I they every Thursday and Friday. Uh, the owner who's super awesome, yeah, he's a great dude. Who uh, owns a place there? Um, he. Uh, he every Thursday and Friday on their Facebook page he posts what new stuff he gets, and then he posted on a Friday and I could not get there because he's only open like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is the only time he's open. Yeah, th- and from what my understanding is that this dude is independently wealthy and can work whenever he he wants he to. does it because he likes to do it. Yeah, and that's fucking cool. And he he has great taste in music. He always has good shit playing in there. Uh, he knows I'm a metal guy, so every time I come in there, he's like, "I got this whole little bit of metal for you," and like he remembers me. So I always oh, that's uh, that always goes such. A long way with you know any kind of business relationship, but but he he had it, he posted it and um uh, I couldn't get there for like another week I I think I I couldn't get to that Thursday I got I went there after work and he still had the copy and it was thirty one ninety nine but it was worth every fucking penny I uh, still haven't opened it I don't I don't want to open it just to cut out of like nostalgia
1: well if you play it backwards you're gonna have a whole world of hurt <laughs> uh, I I got my copy at Fye probably maybe like. Two thousand eight or nine, somewhere around in there. Actually, no, no, it would be before then because I, I moved. I moved to Sevierville in two thousand six, so it'd probably be like maybe two thousand five that I got it. Now that I'm thinking about it. And the the edition I have, it's like a, it's a, it's
2: I think it's colored. It's a special edition. I think they only made like twelve hundred of them, so it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it's 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 one of those albums that is uh, appreciated in time uh, for me. And he, as soon as I showed him, I
2: went for it. and He goes oh he's like dude fast way I was like this fucking album rules and he goes I know he's like, he's like he's like, you ever seen the movie I was like well how do you think I heard of the album <laughs> he started laughing uh,
1: <laughs> Barnes Noble what do you think they have it rated as I'd say a 2 4 out of 5 man that's wild and last but certainly not least and this one's out of 10 Rock and Metal in My Blood I'd say a 7 close 7.5 what would you personally rate it as? I mean, out, out of, of, five, out of I, five, I would I would give
2: it a solid four. And um, there's a song on the album that's actually the last song on it. Um, well, i we'll, we'll we'll get to. Yeah. It. It, it, And it's a great song. I
1: really enjoy. it. It's actually that, my favorite Fastway song. I, I think there's. Uh, I would I'd give it probably probably around a four as well. I think there's a couple of tracks that are. Filler would be nice, the nice way to put it. But let's just break them down. Number one, Trick or Treat, all time classic. So fucking classic. I, I love it. Uh, uh, number two, After Midnight, which was released as a single. It didn't chart, but uh, they made a video for it too it, as well. They did. And um, I, I think in terms of like songs that like I could see being hits, this is probably the one because it's got that you know, that great sing along chorus.
2: Where were we at? We just started just fucking randomly singing it. I can't remember where we were at. I don't
1: know, but we do that a lot. <laughs> we're somewhere. Uh, uh don't stop Don't Stop the Fight. Uh I love the bass intro to this. boom 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 That's also used in the movie, correct? Yeah. This is actually the uh, that's the song that's playing where he's getting bullied. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, next up is uh, "Stand Up." Stand up and be counted. It's a good song. I'm gonna have to
2: listen to this when I go, like on the way home tonight.
1: Uh, tear down the walls. Uh, this is the song that plays where he's literally tearing the the stuff down the from posters his, and all. That. And the only one he leaves is you know um, is Sammy and
2: all those. Like
1: all of the, like infamous posters that would be worth so much money. Oh my god! Yeah, a lot of, a lot of defenders of the faith and you know old Iron Maiden and you know the stuff you know that was really hot during that that time period. Um, right down the drain, hundreds of dollars of paper. Uh, get tough, which is another really good one. Get tough. This boy's had enough. <laughs> bow down, bow. bow. Hold on to the night. Uh, this song, I think, is a little bit on the filler song, on the filler side. It's not bad, but you will hear the chorus so much. Hold on to the night. That <laughs> night, <Do-do-do-right. coughs> there's a doo doo down the road. Doot 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 doot. And the bass is really good in that song as well. Heft, this is, uh I think this is the worst song of the album, in my opinion. Um, it kind of has a Led Zeppelin-y, bluesy kind of vibe, but I don't know. It just never kind of comes together. This sounds like they could have kept this off the album. I think it sounds like something you put on like a B-side of a, a single, you know. It's the only thing for me, like completely preventing this from being a 4.5 or even a 5 if I were gunned to my head. And the final final song, which I think is uh, another contender for best song on the album, as you uh, already asserted, if you could see, it's a beautiful uh, good song, you know, acoustic intro kind of thing, and then it builds, and it's just got a a really nice, uh, almost like a seventies White Snake kind of groove to it. I, I really, really dig it. The music, as much as we love it, has also been the hindrance for the movie in terms of it getting re released. Amazon. Uh, not Amazon, am sorry. Anchor Bay were all set to release a 20th anniversary edition of the DVD in 2006, but canceled it when they encountered problems with the film's music licensing. Now that uh, Fast Eddie Clark is dead, the founding member, one would think that licensing, licensing this is probably easier. Uh, I mean, you're still going to have to pay the estate and stuff, but there's probably... Probably an easier route to get to that stuff, simply because whoever owns the music is just seeing it in pure dollar signs rather than, oh, well, it's worth this amount of money. This amount of I can't talk. This amount to me, as opposed to the benefit of like the movie or whatever. So, what do you what do you think about like the prospect of uh, getting a, Sc- you know, a Screen Factory? Screen Factory be the route, just because we we never really talked about it, but uh,
2: Return of the Living Dead 2 – uh, they released it with its original soundtrack, which was something we would haven't had since the VHS uh, cut, which was, what, 89? 88? Mm-hmm. Now you got me wondering what year it came out. I think it, I think it was, came out in 87, but the the
1: VHS really release was like an 88, I believe. Maybe, I could be wrong. Uh, but. You're, you're probably correct. But it was, it was not immediately made after the first Return of the Living Dead, but yeah, you're right. I, I think they would be the the perfect person people to steward it in terms of like easy accessibility and. Uh, but like, there's also a lot of other more boutique companies like uh, Vinegar Syndrome. Like this is a t- like perfect kind of movie for Arrow's them. Arrow, yeah, Arrow, Arrow's sort of like the screen factory of Europe, you yeah. know. Yeah. So, but I mean, there's, they still make stuff available into America, but it would be more likely that Scream Factor would probably get it before Arrow would. Although, being that it's a huge thing over in Germany, um, I'm sure that there, there might be a possibility of catering to that European market and, and we get it as a secondary. I don't care who releases it. I have a bootlegged copy of the, uh German edition. I need to get a bootleg copy from Roy Dam. Yeah, our good boy our good our good boy. Good boy. Our good buddy Roy Dam, who uh is doing the Lord's work in keeping physical media alive even though uh certain companies have no interest in doing so. Like how how do you not release the new fucking Predator movie on physical media? It's actually a pretty good movie. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed, it, I enjoyed it. It was great and I had I have to get it from, from Roy Dam. Like
2: you're, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm giving somebody that's taking the time to do it the money though you know what
1: I mean like, yeah. I, I mean there's definitely ethical uh, areas of uh, where I think bootlegging is is not good when you're just doing it to capitalize off of something but when it's something that doesn't exist, there's a hole in the market and like I you can look around the Black Lodge here. I'm a physical media collector. I want stuff in hand. That way when it gets taken off of wherever, I don't have that panic moment of like, Oh, I'm never gonna be able to see Sorty House Master three. Well, it's just like this
2: I come to your your place and is it Groove had the first season of uh Chucky.
1: On, on, on Blu-ray. Blu-ray, and that's the only place you could find it on Blu-ray. Yeah, we, uh, when it first came out, I was like, I headed to Walmart, which is like the only place around in our area where you can buy physical media. And they got it on DVD, and it's like, you know, I'm not one of those people that's like strictly like only, you know, only something's worth something from having it, you know, on a specific media. But if it's available on... On a higher media, like why would I want the lesser? Especially when the price point is like not like that big—a difference three or four
2: dollars—and
1: shit, the amount of money we paid for this—it was cheaper. It was cheaper, yeah, than the DVD. So who the fuck knows? But anyways, yeah, I'm checking I, the region, making sure <laughs> I, I want I want uh, Trick or Treat to get a a proper release. And, um, you know, some new special effects, uh, not special effects, but uh, special features, uh, director's commentary would be nice. Um, and I, I'd, and like, I'd
2: like to hear more about the production. The, and that's why I would say Scream Factory would be the route to go, because they actually take the time to do that. Also, with the way they've been doing 4K releases and certain things, they've been doing posters, they've been doing uh, pins. I'm a, a pin mark. I like getting pins and collecting, like, enamel pins and also uh, socks are kind of my thing. But uh, having a fucking trick-or-treat poster
1: with Sammy on it be fucking cool yeah i've i've actually come really close to getting the the poster several times i just don't have a lot of space here in the black lodge to a lot such things but it is a beautiful poster you know beautiful piece of artwork now you know what goes perfectly with a healthy dose of head banging a hard rockin' drinking game. So once you've listened to this retrospective, pop in your copy of Trick or Treat, which is you know if you got it on DVD, hold on to it if you want to keep the movie. But also understand that you can probably get you know fifty or sixty bucks yeah. for it right if you're now. Just
2: looking it up it, w- during this podcast, it was going for fifty five dollars on Amazon. So
1: yeah, it's it's out of print. So the the market is there if you want to line your pockets. But uh, maybe make a copy of it before you uh, put some money in your pocket. All, the, all the same. We got this fun drinking game for you can play along with. So I want you to pop in your copy, watch this movie, and you're going to take a shot whenever Eddie is bullied or laughed at. That right there is going to get you halfway. You know, the beginning of the movie, you're going to get a a, a good uh, good buzz going on. Uh, you're going to see uh, take a shot whenever you see an, a 1980s preppy popped collar. So all the all the bullies are that's going to get you the other halfway there. Uh, anytime you hear a song from the soundtrack used in the movie, you're gonna take a shot. Whenever you see Ozzy or Gene Simmons appear on screen, you're gonna take a shot. Anytime Z- Sammy zaps someone with his demonic electricity via guitar or his fingers, take a shot. Anytime Eddie is tempted to be evil by Sammy's music, take a shot. Anytime Sammy is mentioned on a news pre- program, take a shot. Whenever Sammy is possessing an inanimate object, such as a shower radio or a car, (laughs) take a shot. Uh, Whenever you see the showbiz pizza bear during the school dance, take a shot. And last but certainly not least, whenever a record player is played backwards, take a shot. Now. There's one last one. I want you to take a double shot whenever Sammy sticks his electric finger down someone's throat. <laughs> My favorite moment in the movie because there is something about that that is just so fucking wrong. <laughs> it's the way it's shot and it's just I don't know. it's worst. it's it's almost worse than them being probed in another hole. <laughs> just the way it's shot. All right, however, for those of you that take their drinking a little more seriously, we also have a trick or treat inspired cocktail called After Midnight. Your ingredients you're going to have one cup of chocolate flavored vodka, one cup of vanilla flavored vodka, half a cup of coffee flavored liqueur. You're going to need some ice, uh, chocolate covered espresso beans for garnish, and some chocolate shavings for garnish. I'm
2: going to drink
1: you! <laughs> drink you after midnight! <laughs> <laughs> shot you down my throat and to my thighs uh, here's your directions you're gonna chill two martini glasses in a large martini shaker you're gonna add the chocolate vodka the vanilla vodka and the coffee liqueur you're gonna fill it with ice shake the cocktail well for you know 30 40 seconds pour the cocktail into the glass and garnish with your espresso beans and your shaved chocolate Sounds a little too much on the upscale side for a couple of schlubs like us, but I'd be lying if I said that the fat kid inside of me didn't get a stomach boner from just reading those (laughs) ingredients. So all joking aside, just remember to always drink responsibly. Drink like you're a fucking fish in water. Just don't go driving anywhere. Keep your ass planted on the couch and watch some fun movies. And hopefully we'll download a podcast or two while you're at it. All right, f- uh, closing thoughts. Uh, where does Trick or Treat lay in your you know in your fandom? Like, if your all time favorite movies, I mean, I can't imagine it's like at the top <laughs> of the list, but it, it's definitely not. Well, at the bottom. in like campy horror movies, the like, this is up there for me because like
2: uh, Night of the Demons 2, We had just I just talked to you about it, and like it, it's it's pretty campy too. The acting's pretty pretty sus, um, but it, it's up there. Like I enjoyed that movie. I enjoy Trick or Treat. I enjoy this more for the soundtrack more than anything. Um, Sammy Kerr is a cool villain. Uh, the story, like you said, it kind of has a, a tell of two stories into in, into one movie. But uh, I enjoy it. It's definitely worth
1: the watch. It's worth watching at least once. I think it's a movie that, like, if you go into go into it expecting a serious horror movie, you're gonna probably gonna be let down. And if you're going to it expecting. Like a fun Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, romp of the later era Freddy films, you're probably going to be disappointed. But if you go into it just expecting a good middle of the road, underappreciated, but, you know, just shy of great horror film, you're probably not going to be disappointed. I would definitely take a chance on it if you haven't seen it. I think that's going to wrap us up for this episode. And we're going to be back next month, hopefully. (laughs) Uh, all the, uh, uh, how uh, how the holidays. Uh, All the holidays are, you know, uh, the ones that are hard for me to be able to record are uh, out of the way. And then we may have another episode this month. I haven't really decided on uh, yet, but uh, we'll definitely be back in December to uh, bring you something a little more uh, interesting. Hint, hint with what we got going on. Uh till then the Rants for the Black Lodge Podcast can be found on a multitude of platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so please go give us a subscription right now. You can find us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. Check us on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com, and for the lot of Cthulhu, go buy a t shirt, a mug, or a sticker from our web store at rantarmy.com. For Stack Deck Eddie, this is Brandon A. Lane signing off. Till next time, Rant Army, keep marching.